Mr. Barton, Matt's podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Professor Becky Allen, and I promise you from the outset, this is a flipping good one. Becky is Professor of Education at UCL Institute of Education. From 2014 to 2017, Becky took a period of leave from her academic post to launch a highly successful independent research organisation called Education Data Lab. And in 2017, she launched an experimental teacher survey and engagement tool called TeacherTap with Laura McInerney and Alex Weatherall. Perhaps most importantly of all, like me, Becky is a closet economist and self-confessed lover of all things statistical. It's about time we had one of those on this podcast. So, in a wide-ranging and very important conversation, I think, Becky and I discussed the following things and plenty more besides. What is TeacherTap and what have been some of the most surprising and important results? What impact do good teachers make? And how on earth do we tell a good teacher from a not so good one? Why do teachers leave the profession? Is it as straightforward as workload and behavior or is it a bit more complicated than that? Just how important is teacher experience? How do teachers find good schools to apply to? If autonomy is so motivating, how on earth does this fit in with the move by some so-called successful schools, such as Michaela, to provide centrally created lesson plans to their teachers? Is teaching really suited to improving by deliberate practice? How many hours do teachers actually work and how is that time spent? Just how happy are teachers? Why is it so hard to accurately measure student progress and what mistakes does Becky see some schools making? How should schools really be dealing with a pupil premium gap? And then Becky reflects on the piece of research that has most surprised her. And I'll tell you what, it certainly surprised me too. Now, not only do I think this is a great interview, and believe me, that is literally nothing because of anything I did, but purely because Becky is such a superb guest, but I also think this is an important conversation. We tackle some really big issues, confronting some of the immense challenges facing the profession that we love so much, such as retention, workload, recruitment, behaviour, well-being, happiness, and so on, but also offer potential ways forward. I know this will be a conversation that I return to again and again, and I really hope you feel the same way too. Just two usual plugs before we get cracking. If you're interested in reading about 12 years of horrendous maths teaching mistakes and what I've done differently since, then you might well enjoy my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths. And if you enjoy these podcasts, can I please ask you to do two little favours. Firstly, leave a quick review on iTunes if you haven't already. It really does help people find the show. And secondly, why not introduce this podcast to a colleague, maybe by directing them towards your favourite episode to get them started. It just helps this audience continue to grow. Thanks so much for any help you can give me in that regard. I really do appreciate it. 
Anyway, I shall deprive you no longer as I introduce Professor Becky Allen. Enjoy this one. I know you will, especially you, Mark McCourt, because I'll tell you what, it is ram-packed full of lovely statistics. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Becky, we start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? I'm going to pick the number 10. 10 is the number that separates my youngest child, who's four, from my eldest, who is eight. And it divides my eldest, who is eight, from me, from probably about 11 years onwards. <laughs> you see, my youngest knows the number 10. And she, he knows it is the one that comes after nine and before 11. He can show it on his hands. But my eldest understands how special 10 is in our number system. She knows the tenness of 10. And I think it's one of the most transformational things that happens to a child in maths around the kind of year one stage of the maths curriculum. So she thinks 10 is a really special number. However, I, at least once I got to the age of about 11, I got to find out that 10 isn't intrinsically special. And it's us as humans have, who have made it so. And I got to find this out um, because um, when I was at secondary school, we did those SMP Teach Yourself Maths booklets, which were amazing, except that you could finish them all if you were good at maths in a couple <laughs> of terms. So they gave me this textbook from the 1960s to just work through. And I spent weeks and weeks in it, studiously changing numbers from one base to another, to base six, to base 12, base 10, to base two. Um, and, and we really, we don't teach anything in school about the history of maths. And I wish we did, because it would allow children to really think about how it was us who created base 10. I'll tell you what, Becky, that's a superb answer that. And it reminds me of, I don't know if you, you know Mark McCourt, if you've kind of come across him at any conference or anything, but he he's obsessed with with different bases of numbers. And he he's fuming that we only teach um, base 10. And yeah, he, he any kind of extension activity or anything that, that he gives kids is always do this calculation in a different base. So yeah, that's that's a brilliant answer that, Becky. I love that. Number 10, superb. Hey, I hope, I hope we haven't peaked too soon with the good answers here. That was a very, very strong start. Um, question number two then. What was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Okay, so this answer is going to be much less exciting. <laughs> um, and I'm concerned about this question. I think you might have to change it um, because like everybody else, I'm going to have to say calculus. Nice, nice. Um, you know, so you, like me, uh, an economist, Yes. And it's the bit of maths that carried me across when I had to change subject halfway through my degree from maths to economics. You see, modern microeconomics is just the study of optimal decision making of agents given constraints. So for economists, decision making takes place at the margin. And life for us is just one huge maximization or minimization <laughs> exercise. <laughs> I like it. I see. I see what I try and almost on this podcast keep it quiet that I'm kind of a bit of a secret economist. Oh, I'm heart. sorry. But we can no, cut that no, bit out. No, no, not at all. Because that's one of the things when we dig into your book, the the kind of economics really shines through in the teacher gap. So no, I think it's time for me to come out onto the open here and embrace it. So no, I'm I'm pleased you brought that up, Becky. And final question then: What what would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and research? That rather depends on whether I need to earn an income or not. 
<laughs> Go on, interpret it however you like. So if I had more time, I'd really like to find out whether I can write good music. Um, but because I suspect the answer is no, um, I'd probably have to think of something else to earn some money. And so my choice there is going to be far less kind of radical. But I would really love to be an epidemiologist. So epidemiology is just the study of the determinants of health and disease conditions. And um, it's quite similar to the kind of work that I do that I do now. It's being transformed by big data. It really has the possibility of saving lives. And because it has the possibility of saving lives, I think it matters a bit more than education policy making. <laughs> and was that ever on the cards, Becky? Being an epidemiologist? Yeah, yeah. No, because I only ever really got to learn about it and find out about it after I had got into doing education research. Um, and one of the dilemmas is it's always quite hard to switch across because I have so much accumulated knowledge now about the education system that although technically I could do the statistical work involved in epidemiology, um, I would be starting from scratch in my understanding of, of medicine and healthcare. Got but. It. You know, life is long. Maybe I will yet switch. Let's see. <laughs> Got it. Super. Fantastic. Well, you've kind of hinted at a bit of your kind of background there. But do you want to just take us briefly through the steps in, in your career to date, Becky? Sure. So I think my career can best be characterised as stumbling into some pretty interesting experiences. <laughs> but doing so is the result of trying to escape from whatever the thing is that I was supposed to be doing at the time. So I started a maths degree. And I finished an economics degree um, and economics was a subject that I hadn't studied at A-level. I didn't really know what it was. I had no real desire to study it, but I had quite a strong desire not to be studying maths anymore because it was getting pretty hard. <laughs> and someone told me that if you were really into politics, which I was at the time, but you weren't sure whether you could write an essay, and I definitely wasn't sure I could write an essay, then economics was the subject to study. So I managed to finish a degree in economics and then I'd failed to apply for any jobs at all. I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I got lucky because I graduated into an economic boom. And so after a few months of just drifting around with little jobs, I managed to walk into a job as an equity research analyst at a US investment bank. Gee, flipping heck. So those were the days and I figured that the sign on bonus would just clear out my student debts. <laughs> and, you know, these were the days when your student debts were so low that you could clear them out. And then through a combination, I guess, of inertia and, and actually genuine enjoyment of the job, um, I didn't manage to get out of that job for a few years. But eventually I figured that I really did need to leave and do something meaningful with my life. But I really couldn't figure out what that was. So on a whim, I just applied to train to be a teacher. And then again, by good fortune, this was by then the early 2000s, there was a chronic teacher shortage. So I just walked on to a PGCE course at the last minute at the Institute <laughs> of Education in London. And I trained to teach uh, business studies and economics, which in itself was a rather odd choice. I hadn't studied either subject at school myself. I wasn't really up to speed on the basic subject content. You know, you have to teach things like methods of production and stuff like that. Um, so it was tough. I completed my PGCE. I took a job in a North London comprehensive and I was teaching mostly economics, a bit of business, a bit of maths, 
bit of careers to fill up my timetable. Um, and importantly, during that year, and because I'm completely crazy, I was studying at the same time for a master's part that part time down at the <laughs> Institute of Education. Um, so it's really hard for me to remember whether I whether I enjoyed or I hated that year. And I think it was probably a bit of both. But it got to spring term and I decided I wanted to move cities for personal reasons. So staying at that school wasn't an option. So I half-heartedly applied for the one teaching job that came up in the place I was moving to. And I went to the interview and I hated the school and I walked out halfway through the interview day. And so that's how I somewhat inadvertently ended up quitting teaching. Um, and then I got lucky yet again. Um, so I, I got a scholarship to study full time to, for a PhD at the Institute of Education. Um, and then from there, I was lucky that a lectureship came up, um, which I got on the completion of my PhD. And that was my academic career. Um, and it continued until in late 2014, I ended up going on long term academic leave to set up Education Data Lab with the education charity FFT. And I think it was perceived as career suicide by many of my peers <laughs> at the time because nobody leaves academia. Um, but FFT were offering me the chance to set up my own lab um, and a job that was compatible with spending time with my kids, both of whom had been born by then. So I started Data Lab on a three day a week work from home contract. Uh, they set up an office for us um, for Data Lab as close to home as it could possibly be, which for me, because I live in Sussex, was right next door to Victoria Station. And so those were kind of three very happy years of my life. Um, but at the start of this year, I decided I probably should go back and resume my academic career at the Institute of Education. And that's what I've been doing this year. Um, Alongside that, though, in the background over the last 18 months or so, um, along with my good friends, Laura McInerney, who was at the time editor of Schools Week, and Alex Weatherall, who was a physics teacher in Yorkshire, we've um, started an experimental teacher survey tool called TeachTap. And that's what we've been working on in every spare moment that we have ever since. Flipping out. And definitely we're going to dig into teacher tap and very, very shortly. Can, can I just ask you, Becky, and this may touch upon some of the things that we're going to dig deeper into later on in the in our conversation. But what, what would need to what would needed to have changed to keep you in teaching? Would, would there have been anything that could have been different that would have perhaps meant you would still be a teacher today? I was surprised with teaching um, how isolating and lonely it felt as a job. And perhaps that's because I had made the mistake of training to teach in a tiny subject where you are, in essence, mm. the only teacher in the school. Um, but I felt I was doing this very weird job that I wasn't really very good at. Um, I didn't know how to get better at the job. It wasn't obvious that there was any route to getting better other than just general trial and error. And that just didn't seem very appealing to me. But moreover, at the time... It didn't really feel like in the school anyone much was taking any interest in wanting me to get better at teaching. So kind of as a, as a workplace experience, it really didn't feel very fulfilling to me. And I didn't, because of that, feel very excited about working in a job where I was where where I was able to get better at it and succeed at it. And I think that's why I felt OK about walking away again. 
That's it's really interesting that it's not something I've ever considered or, or kind of needed to that because I'm a, a maths teacher almost by definition I'm always in a department of at least well I've, I've never taught in a department of less than 10 people actually so you, you're always surrounded by people colleagues who you can ask ideas of that you can almost kind of judge yourself against look for areas to improve but yeah it must be quite a lonely existence in these smaller subjects where either you're only one of you or two of you within a, within a department does that make sense it does and i have mixed feelings actually about whether people should even be allowed to train in these subjects because of the environment that we then put them into in a school i would prefer that people trained and were able to teach um one of the largest subjects initially and that things like teaching minority subjects like economics was something that people were able to learn how to do and move across to once they were experienced teachers and able to cope with the demands of being the only teacher in the school that's interesting. They're very interesting. Superb. Well, I'll tell you what, Becky, because we, we're, we're gonna, we've got an absolute ton to get through here. And I'm, I'm going to be taking us off on tangents left, right and centre. But, but, but before we dig into uh, Teacher Tap, um, I want to ask you the question that I ask all my guests, and that's about a favourite failure. Now, this could be from your teaching career. It could be from any aspect of your working life, however you want to interpret it. But I'm interested in uh, an experience that you had that didn't go according to plan and crucially what you learned from it. Okay, so on my second PGC placement, I spent 40 minutes of a 55 minute lesson with a year nine maths class, lining and relining them up in the corridor in an attempt to get them to walk into the class in a vaguely orderly fashion. Uh, the background to this class, well, I was given them because their normal teacher, um, they, it was felt needed a break from them because he was struggling. So why do I want to tell this story and what did I learn from this failure? Well, I learned absolutely nothing. <laughs> I didn't learn how to deal better with the situation next time round. I didn't gain their respect. They learned absolutely nothing during that class, probably with any classes that they had with me. Um, I even failed to learn the very important insight that you must find a school that has behaviour sorted if you're a novice teacher. Because actually, I went on to take a job at a school where it, it was blindingly obvious as I walked through the gates at the interview that behaviour was going to be a problem again. And yet I didn't learn the lesson and say no to that job. Um, but I want to give this example, um, which I think is an all too common example that you have during a PGC placement, just to remind us that we expose our teachers to experiences that are utterly pointless and utterly inconsistent with our beliefs about how people learn. Yeah, it's, it's again, like you've hit the nail on the head. It, it is an all too common experience that. And it's it's interesting, though, if I contrast this with um, one of my early interviews on here was with with Bruno Reddy, um, a, a well-known maths teacher. And he spoke at length about the importance of, of routines and how at the start of the year he would ha quite happily spend a lesson or even two lessons uh, getting kids to line up, getting them used to the expectations for asking questions, for collecting books in, for speaking to each other and so on and so forth because he thought that that was an investment that was worthwhile that was going to reap rewards throughout the course of the year but you're talking about something different here Becky right this is almost kind of uh, you, you weren't going to be with that class for the full year this was a kind of short-term mm. thing where it wasn't going to pay off in the long run is, is that right? So I think that's right um, I also wish that we taught um student teachers um, the basic routines of the classroom because mm. I think that we should um, but I also 
don't understand why we don't make choices about having consistent routines um, within schools. And one of the problems with that school and indeed the school that I went to teach at was was and, and it was very common at the time was that there there were no expectations around behavior, around what are the rules about how you get students into the classroom, what are the rules about um, how students, how and when students sit down, how they get their stuff out to start the lesson, how the start the lesson should proceed. Um, and when you don't have those rules, so you can, as a teacher yourself, then spend your time at the start of um, the year sorting them all out for your class and you can succeed but it would be so much more efficient if the students just knew what the rules were because everybody was adhering to the same rules um, so I think that you know I think that behavioral rules is one of those examples of where it doesn't undermine your autonomy as a teacher um, in the main part of the lesson just to have a basic set of, uh, of social norms within a school about about how you conduct yourself at the start and end of lessons Absolutely. No, makes makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm with you there, Becky. Well, I, I want to talk now about, about teacher tap and uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm a bit I'm a bit addicted to this. And it, it's it, it, and this is a, a kind of a indication of the sadness of my life. But it's one of the highlights of my day whenever I get the notification through. So tell, tell us for, for people who haven't, don't know anything about it. Just tell us what teacher tap is and, and where the idea came from. So every day at 3.30, um, an app buzzes on thousands of teachers' phones across the country. And once it's buzzed at 3.30, they've got up to 24 hours to answer, um, to click on the app. When they click on the app, they answer three questions. They're always multiple choice questions, very quick to answer. They might be about their day. They might be about their opinions, about something to do with teaching. Um, and after they've answered the questions, they get to find out um, how all the other teachers who are using the app, and at the moment it's about two and a half thousand, um, how they answered the questions from the day before. And then finally, when they click through, they get a link to an article or a blog post. And we try to find things that they will find interesting, usually things um, that have been written by teachers. And um, for the most part, they relate to um, teachers talking about their classroom practice. So uh, why did we do this? Well, I think all the best ideas come out of failure. And I had earlier on in my academic career tried to run these longitudinal surveys of teachers and in particular PGC students. And getting the PGC students to answer this survey, which was an email survey, was kind of OK whilst they were still um, at the Institute of Education. But the moment they went into their school placements, they just wouldn't answer the surveys. So we had terrible response rates and terrible response rates is pretty much true of all surveys in education. And teachers don't answer surveys because they don't sit in front of their computer all day like most employees do with nothing better to do than answer <laughs> email surveys that are coming through because they're kind of busy doing other stuff. Um, and so it kind of seemed obvious to me that at some point we had to try a different way of serving teachers and that having an app and an app that would only take a few seconds out of the teacher day was the answer to this. Um, and we were we were really lucky, um, or at least I was very lucky to have get an idle phone call from a uh a charity that was set up for innovation um, by the government that's called Nesta. So they give little amounts of money out for people who've got kind of little technological innovations that they want to test out. 
and um, somebody I knew called me up and they said, you know, it's nearly it's the, nearly the end of our financial year and we've just got this tiny amount of money left. Like, can you think of anything you would like to do? And I said, oh, it's funny you should say that. I have got this little idea. Um, and so, you know, I got in touch with Laura McInerney, who is a really good friend of mine, and I've always been desperate to work with her and said, you know, let's try this thing out. Um, and, you know, so we're very lucky that Nesta and, and another charitable foundation called Gatsby gave us enough money to be able to build the app um, and spend a year really just testing it out and trying to figure out what it is. And we are still changing it a lot um, on the fly as we slowly learn how best to get it to work. But it's been enormously successful. You know, it is the biggest survey of teachers in the country um, and it's taking place every single day. It's it's absolutely amazing, and it's like I, I do it for two reasons, and I'm sure that it's same for same for all teachers doing it. One because I love the I love the CPD link at the end. That's that's a nice little treat for me when I've done it. But also I'm just desperate to see the previous day's results, and I'm literally desperate. And I'm 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 try, having little bets with myself what I think is going to be the, the winning thing and stuff like that. And I absolutely love it. So no doubt we're going to keep referring back to it throughout this conversation. But just just to set the scene, Becky, I wonder if you can just talk us through a couple of your kind of favourite results. So so is, is there any result uh, um, that surprised, particularly surprised you? I've I've been looking this week at all the data that we've been collecting, where we are we're able to ask teachers questions in lots and lots of different ways. And so over the past three months, we've had loads of questions on teachers' levels of stress, their well-being, their burnout, um, and some of that has really violated my expectations. Um, it shows new teachers are not feeling worse about their lives and about their jobs than other teachers. Um, and this doesn't quite make sense to me. And it doesn't quite make sense to me because on the one hand, we know that they're having to deal with very high incidence of behavior problems and disruptions in their class, which is undoubtedly a pretty stressful thing to have to deal with. So, for example, every single week this past half term, we've asked um, about whether um, teaching and learning has been disrupted on your last lesson on a Friday afternoon. And if you're an NQT, the, you're saying, yes, it was at some point, um, uh, well over 40 percent of the time, so almost half the time. Um, that seems really high, high to me. We also know that novice teachers are very likely to choose to leave the profession, um, which should be an indicator that they're mm. unhappy, right? So why are they not looking more unhappy than other teachers? And at the moment, the only way I can really reconcile this is through the question that we asked, where we asked something like, um, if you could find a job outside teaching uh, that where you got exactly the same salary as you currently get in teaching, would you leave teaching? And here's the thing about experienced teachers. We know that very few of them do actually leave teaching, but well over half of them said, yes, I would mm -hmm. leave teaching if I could find an alternative job at the same salary. And so we're kind of reminded that one of the things about novices and the reason why they leave is in part because they can, because they're on low salaries um, and therefore they have the opportunity to make a career switch and start at the bottom rung of another career. Um, and and we shouldn't presume that our experienced teachers, just because they don't leave, are are happy with the job the way that it is at the moment. 
Jeez, that's that's interesting and a little bit depressing. But, it is, yeah, isn't it? It's <laughs> flipping it. Jeez. Okay. Well, what about um again? Because I could speak to you all day about teacher tap, Becky. Are there any any results that spring to mind that you felt was particularly important? Okay, so this is a tough one again. Teacher tap has really solidified my sense that the SATs are not fit for purpose in our accountability system. So one of the things when we were at Data Lab was we'd keep getting phone calls from secondary school head teachers and they'd be complaining about the SATs results that they were facing from one of their feeder primary schools. So they get a particular primary school where they take all of the students, say 60 students who have astonishingly high SATs results. The kids arrive, they don't appear to have an, a, an ability that is consistent with their SATs scores. And then inevitably at the other end, when they walk out, they've got negative progress mm. age scores. And they just kept saying to us, surely you can prove they would use the word cheating. There's cheating <laughs> taking place. We prefer to use the word maladministration. <laughs> and we couldn't. And we kept racking our brains for kind of how can we prove there's a problem with SATs? Um, so when we ask primary teachers on, on teacher tap and we asked them after the SATs in May, do you feel that your SATS results last year were an accurate reflection of academic standards. Only a third of them are saying yes. Um, and they, they mention the presence of maladministration and they mention the, the excessive drilling that takes place for SATS. But then more seriously, we say, well, have you ever done or been encouraged to do any of the following practices if you have, if you have ever overseen SATS? Um, and 14% say they have provided a pupil with a reader or a scribe under the pretense of normal practice. 2% have allowed classes extra time. 3% say they've pronounced the spellings during a test in a way, in ways that are not, um, that are, that are helpful, um, to, to spelling them out. 3% say they've gone around and they've pointed out incorrect answers. Um, and so it goes on and we ask secondary teachers the same, you know, the same question. Has a student ever told you about something that's taken place during their the SATs when they when they sat them? And secondary teachers claim one in one in five secondary teachers claim that a student has said to them that there's been a problem with maladministration in the SATs, um, particularly pointing out incorrect answers during during SATs taking place. Um, so we've got a problem. We've got a problem that primary teachers don't think that SATs are a particularly accurate um, measure of attainment. Over 70% of secondary teachers don't agree it's, a, it's an accurate measure of attainment. And yet this is the thing that holds our entire accountability system together because it acts as our baseline for our secondary schools and our outcome for our primary schools. And I think we have to address this. Flipping out, Becky. That's absolutely well. It's again on the one hand, it's unbelievable, but on the other hand, again, it's not a, not a massive surprise if, if that makes sense. Without without wishing to divert us too much, what what the hell are we going to do about that? What what's the solution there then? Well, assuming we have to have high stakes accountability, um, I think we have to rethink how Sats are being taken. Um, we could keep the SATs exactly as they are, but change the way that they're overseen. So some people have suggested we can do head teacher swaps so that head teachers at other primary schools have to go and oversee them. Um, 
we could try to formulize, um, uh, formalize the whole thing. And the best way to do that actually is in secondary schools that are very well versed in how to um, hold and host public examinations. And we could have them at the start of year seven um, hosted in gym halls in, in secondary schools if we wanted to. Um, it doesn't completely fix the problem because, of course, secondary schools have an incentive to depress the results as much <laughs> as possible. But at least secondary schools are experienced in um, hosting high stakes examinations and, and not having widespread maladministration taking place. Um, you know, so these, these are like the basic fixes we could put in place whilst keeping the nature of the SATs the same. I don't think that fixes the problem of excessive drilling for SATs, which I just, I think is a problem too, because I think it excessively narrows the curriculum in primary schools. But to, to fix that, we would have to change the nature of um, the things that we chose to test in the SATs and really shake things up by saying, for example, that rather than telling um, primary school teachers what was going to be in the SATs, instead we would just say, um, please set aside the third week in May um, for some tests on any aspect of the national curriculum. And we could do that. Um, I think it would terrify primary school teachers, <laughs> but it would allow us to know um, whether students have been taught the national curriculum, which at the moment we don't get to find out. We get to find out whether they have been prepared for the SATs. Jeez, flipping heck. Oof. Right, I can see a revolution starting here, Becky. This is, this is great, this is great <laughs> stuff, this. Um, last specific question on teacher tap, and as I say, we'll no doubt come back to it throughout the interview. But do you have a particular favourite question that you've asked? So I like questions that are the kind of questions that are quite fun um, and are not the kind of questions you'd be allowed to ask if you were running some sort of serious survey. So I quite like kind of fantasy questions. So we asked a question like how much marking would you do if you knew that nobody, no heads, line managers, other teachers, parents would be monitoring? <laughs> and if all that mattered was balancing pupil learning and your workload? Or we asked another fantasy question where we said, well, you're moving house with your perhaps hypothetical school aged children and you're going to choose between two new islands to settle on. And on the first schools are open Monday to Thursday from 8.45 to 4.15 each day. And on the second schools are open from Monday to Friday from 8.45 to 3.15 each day. Which island would you choose to live on? Jeez, you're going to have to give us the answer to, to both of those ones, Becky. Can you remember them off the top of your head, the marking one and the, the island one? Yeah, so for the island, 75% of people opted for the island with the longer day on oh, Monday yeah. to Thursday. These are people, we say you have to have kids too, so you've got to think about what's best for them and for you, and that's what they opt for. Um, and it's not a kind of, although it's a fantasy example, when we went on to give the tip after that, we, we gave a link to the story of places in America that have gone down to um, having four day weeks and they've gone down to having four day weeks because they've got um, massive financial problems in their schooling system in certain states in America um, but they tell the story of kind of what's happened as a consequence and then on the marking one um, one in ten, ten teachers say I wouldn't do any of my marking and just under a quarter say I would continue to do all of the marking that I currently do. 
When we broke that down, though, I seem to remember when we broke it down by how senior you were in the school. The more senior you were in the school, the more likely you were to claim that you would want to continue to do all of your marking. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I'll tell you what, it's, um, it's, I mean, it's lovely to speak to you for a number of reasons, Becky. But one, because you love stats like me and I'm, I'm sick of interviewing people who are all about mechanics and friction this oh, and all, all this nonsense. But this, exactly, correct, correct. And now we've got some proper stats to go off. This is, this is brilliant <laughs> stuff. Um, right. I want to turn now um, to your book. Now, I don't know if this is going to come out right when I'm going to say this, but I, I hope don't take offence here. I absolutely loved it, but it put me on a bit of a downer. I felt a bit depressed really reading some bits of it because it's heartbreaking right some of the and I, I love the way it's written I love the way you've got kind of personal teacher stories in there and it's just I was feeling really really fed up but it's the amount of notes I've made were, was ridiculous as a result of it so I want to I want to I want to dig into I want to dig into some key aspects from it but first so the book's called The Teacher Gap and what, why did you want to write it Becky? Well, Sam Sims, who I wrote the book with, and I, um, he had been my PhD student when I was at the Institute of Education. We were having a catch-up lunch in the cafe at Westminster Abbey, um, and we got chatting about the revolution in the availability of data on teachers over the past decade. So in England, um, since 2010, we've had a school workforce census. We know a little more as a result about the shape of teachers' careers. But that data hasn't been linked in any way to test scores, so it hasn't taught us much about teacher quality. But in the US, the Gates Foundation money um, has led to widespread linking of teachers to pupils and data sets and research and trying to understand how teachers contribute to learning more or less in a year by students. So Sam just said, well, not many people know what's going on in this amazing literature that's emerging. Like We should write a book about this. And I was incredibly sleep deprived because I'd recently just had my second baby. And so for some reason, I just went along with the idea, which is a completely crazy thing to do. You should not write a book when you have a job and you have two very young children. Um, but having said that, like by the end, I think the reason you write books, um, you think you're writing them for other people. But I actually think you end up having to write them to work out what you actually think about something. Yes because it forces you to organize your ideas in a way that writing articles or writing blogs doesn't. And whilst I wouldn't say that the book is 100% coherent as a perspective on what I think about teacher careers, it's certainly more coherent than the process that I've been through before that to date of just writing individual journal articles about small aspects of, of, of the teaching career. Got it. And, and the title, The Teacher Gap, what, what is The Teacher Gap, Becky? So the teacher gap is three things. It's first the disparity between what we know about the importance of teachers and how we treat them. So in recent years, most policy reform, curriculum reform, the rise of the audit culture, all these things have just served to make life worse for our teachers. Secondly, it's the difference between the number of teachers we need and the number that we have. We've essentially had to become a non-selective profession. We miss recruitment targets by increasing amounts each year. And then thirdly, it's the difference between the quality of teachers we currently have and the quality of teachers that we want. And that's because we failed to find a reliable way to help teachers get better at teaching throughout their career. Got it. Um, and... The, a bit that struck me early on, I, th I think this was in the introduction, was when you kind of 
give a, a kind of measure for the, the impact that a good teacher can actually have compared to a, a, not, a not as effective teacher? And we'll, and we'll talk about what makes them effective in a second. But can you just summarise that impact, Becky? How, how important are good teachers to, to students' development and, and learning? So the US economist Eric Hanuk-Shek talks about moving a child from an average teacher to a top teacher's class. And he says that means they'll manage to learn in six months what they otherwise would have taken 12 months to learn. And then that's that's big, that isn't it? Flipping heck. And then here's another stat. So Raj Chetty talks about moving a child from a poor quality teacher. So the bottom five percent of teachers to an average quality teacher. And he has estimated that would increase the child's lifetime earnings by a quarter of a million dollars. Jeez. Flipping heck. And I guess like listeners will be probably shocked by that, but also mm. screaming out the, the kind of obvious question here, of, of course, is how do we know who these good teachers are? And mm. is there an easy answer to that, Becky? Because it's, it's a thorny issue, that one, isn't it, straight away? Yeah, so we can't easily find out who good teachers are. But let's suppose that by good, we mean um, they're teaching classes where students learn a lot and therefore do better on a test. And that in itself is already quite a contested notion mm. of good quality. But suppose we mean that. Well, we could look at the pupil progress or value added scores from a single class. And those things would be correlated with teacher quality. But there's a prop there's problems. So one is that they're confounded by what we would call pupil unobserved characteristics. So these are the things about those students that mean they're better or better or more or less likely to do well anyway. I mean, for example, their home environment and what support they have for learning outside the classroom. But not only that, those those pupil progress scores are just going to be very noisy measures of of what the pupil has truly learned during that class. So, um. Dylan William talks about um, just needing lots and lots of classes to get precise um, estimates at the level of the individual teacher for how good they are. He talks about collecting data for 11 years to get a good <laughs> estimate of how good you are at teaching. And ideally, you either need random assignment of kids into, into schools and into classes, or you need really good ways of controlling for these unobserved pupil characteristics. Ideally, you need to be able to observe teachers across multiple contexts. So it's really demanding to use test score data. So then you move on to saying, well, can't we just walk into the classroom and see how good mm -hmm. the teachers are? And we've still got a problem there with lesson observations. And that's just that the accuracy of the raters is low, um, regardless of who they are, actually, regardless of how experienced the raters are. So raters, when they when they observe lessons, they're both inconsistent with each other, even when they're observing the same lesson. But they're also inconsistent with the data on on how good a teacher that teacher actually is as measured by value added scores. And most importantly, they're biased and they're biased with respect to the the ability profile of the class. So so the higher the ability profile of the class that you teach, the more positive the ratings that you're likely to get about your lesson observations. Um, and we can do other things. We can ask the opinions of students. And again, they're correlated, but they're very, very noisy perspectives on how good teachers are. And they have all kinds of other biases. We can just ask head teachers their opinions of their the, of their teachers. And actually, like head teachers are are um, 
reasonably accurate about how good their teachers are. They're something like kind of three times more accurate than we would expect from uninformed guesswork. So it's better than nothing. It's not too bad. But they're not building that up from precise data. They end up with these kind of quite vague, holistic judgments of what their teachers are like. And that's OK. Um, so you may wonder when you listen to all of that, well, how on earth can anyone do any body of research about the quality <laughs> yeah. of teaching if we can't learn how good teachers are? And the answer is that although we can't tell how good you are as an individual teacher, we don't need to be able to do that in order to do research on what the correlates of good teaching are because we can actually aggregate data over lots and lots of teachers and try to try to learn um, about what kind of characteristics are associated with good teaching. So it's slightly less demanding to do research on teaching than it is to judge the performance of an individual teacher, as you might want to um, for performance management reasons. It's fascinating that, Becky, and it's, it's something that's come up a couple of times in, in interviews, particularly with Dylan Willing when he was on the show for the second time. Just again, it scares me that the um, the lack of reliability in lesson observations and the fact mm -hmm. that, um, again, that the, yeah, just the inconsistency that, that different observers will give and even the same observer over different time periods will rate lessons differently it, it's frightening isn't it because these observations are still pretty high stakes in a lot of schools whether it be to uh, determine uh, pay progression or for performance management purposes or obviously job interviews and stuff what well, what do we do there is, is it time to scrap observations or do they do they still have a do they still have a place in schools I think observation has to have a place in professional development um, and having somebody observe your lesson so that you can have a professional conversation about whether you're getting better at doing the things in the classroom that you're working on getting better at um, is really important. I think when it comes to deciding whether you are a good teacher for the purposes of performance management, and especially given we've got chronic teacher shortages, I just think we need to be a bit more relaxed about what we actually need to know. Um, we don't need to have a precise ranking of teachers within a school from the best, very best to the very worst in order for the schooling system to function. And indeed, through most of the history of education, we've never had that. And, and we've all got on OK as a result. Um, I, I think there are a tiny, tiny group of teachers in teaching who we really urgently need to get better at teaching for the good of the children. We don't know how big that group is, but it's tiny. But we probably do know who they are. The data is probably good enough for us to identify those outliers. And, and, then, and then we need to decide what to do with them and whether we're helping them work at get, getting better at teaching or helping them work at finding another career. But I, I just think let's let's not try to pretend that it's possible to do these things or even that we that we need to do these things. Got it. Superb. And we'll, we'll touch upon um, improving the, the existing teachers in the profession um, a little later. Um, I want to I talk now about teacher retention. And you, you've touched upon this when we were talking about teacher tap before. But um, I guess a, an obvious, it might be a stupid question, but why do so many teachers leave the profession, Becky? Is it is it literally down to behaviour and workload or is it a bit more complicated than that? I wish we knew. And it's been, you know, probably my obsession for the past 10 years is trying to think about how we work out why teachers leave the profession and whether there's anything we can do about it, actually. Mm. Um, we tend to think of leaving as an event 
And the thing that research does do every so often is just says at the point of that event, the exit exit interviews, like, why are you walking out the door? And when DfE commissioned studies that um, ask that, and they've commissioned them many times, and it's been true, it was even true well over a decade ago, the things that are cited more frequently than anything else is workload. Government initiatives, which frankly manifest themselves in workload, and stress, which probably arises from workload. And those are those are like mentioned more than anything else. Um, pupil behaviour is high up on the list in secondary schools and not elsewhere. Um, the the work that's been done. Um, NFER just published yesterday on Understanding Society and Sam Sims, my co-author, um, published on TALIS, looking at whether um, leaving the profession or reported intention to leave the profession, whether it was correlated with the hours you actually do work. Mm. And the answer is no, it's not. And this comes down to the issue is not necessarily the working hours, but the perception of the work burden. And we talk about this in the job in in our book. We talk about um, a psychological framework um, that is designed to explain people's commitment and motivation at work. It's called the job demands resources model. And it thinks of of work really as a balancing act. And so on the one side, we have our demands, and these are the things that require sustained effort and are perceived by individuals as a hindrance such as conflict office politics red tape demands are the things that drain our energy and if they're too intense they're the things that result in exhaustion disengagement and ultimately burnout but you've got something on the other side of the ledger which is the resources and it's anything that's helping you in your job achieve, feel like you're achieving your goals, such as getting training, feedback, having social support. Um, and so we should try to think about our schools as the extent to which we're managing to give p- teachers the resources that make them feel like they can cope with their job, cope with the demands that we place on them and minimise the demands as much as possible. Can I just ask there, it's really interesting that, Becky. So it's not the case that in the schools where teachers are leaving, the teachers are working fewer hours. It's that these teachers almost feel kind of, I don't know if more valued is the right way to put it, but they have kind of more support, more resources available. And firstly, is that the case? And secondly, are there any kind of practical examples of what some of these schools are doing who are managing to retain teachers? Yeah. So, I mean, so that's the idea of the job demands resources model is that um, so. So, yes, it's true that um, there are teachers working very long hours who don't feel burnt out and they don't feel burnt out because the things that they are spending the hours on aren't Mm. things to them that feel like a hindrance to them Mm. being able to do their job um, and they have the support to do it. So what do we see in um, schools where they appear to have created an environment where even though teachers might be working long hours, um, they feel supported in doing their jobs? Um, well, this was a question that was addressed I mean, by others, but also particularly by Matthew Kraft, who's a U.S. economist. Um, he says some these are some of the things that you see. You see good order and discipline in the school, so safe working environments, um, senior leadership consistently enforcing behavior rules. You see peer collaboration taking place. 
Um, that's a problem in the UK because we have red, relatively high teaching timetables. Mm. Um, you see um, leadership that's focused on supporting teachers and making an effort to address their concerns. You're seeing professional development take place. But importantly, you have a culture, an atmosphere of trust and mutual respect. You have clear expectations communicated to the students and the families so that everybody understands what the school is doing and isn't doing. Um, and within teacher evaluation, you have teachers who feel that they are receiving feedback that's helping them improve their teaching. So that's what these schools look like. It's interesting that because it, it's it's all doable, isn't it? It's not the case that if you're a kind of school or a head teacher listen to this, you think, oh, God, the only way to keep teachers happy is to give them a couple of extra frees a week or, you know, scrap all marking and feedback policies. These are things that don't necessarily mean that teachers are going to be working less. It's, it's just it's just these extra kind of supporting resources. It, it's doable, isn't it, Becky, do you think? Yeah, I absolutely think it's doable. Um, I think it's down to good leadership, though. So on TeacherTap, we asked this question, um, have you ever left a teaching role because of any of the following things? And the things that the teachers who had in the past moved schools um, reported more frequently the workload as being a problem were poor relationships with line managers or senior leadership within the school and unethical, what they perceived to be unethical leadership in the school. Um, so these are teachers who chose to remain in the profession, but were choosing to move schools um, and ranking pretty high on the list was their perception of the leadership in their schools. That's interesting. That. Um, one more question on retention. And this is going to come out wrong here, Becky. So you're going to you're going to have to turn this round to, to not make me sound stupid. Here. <laughs> um, the. We, we talked before about how it's a bit difficult to measure who the good teachers are and the weak mm. teachers are, but it's possibly doable if we if we kind of aggregate it together. And um, is there any evidence that actually it's it's the weaker teachers who are who are leaving mm. the profession and therefore actually it's not that bad a thing, if that makes sense? Right. So once again, we're looking to the US to try and answer this question. And there were a number of studies that were claiming that teachers who left the schools were less able than those who remain. Um, but those studies kind of for technical reasons have been contested in recent years. There has been a nice longitudinal study recently from Texas um, that claims for the very inexperienced teachers, it does appear to be low quality teachers who are leaving at higher rates than their more uh, more competent counterparts amongst the inexperienced. But there's a but and the but is that that particular study says that once teachers have a few years of experience, it's then the more able teachers who are more likely to be leaving the profession. Um, so it's a bit mixed and it's and it's, you know, it's US data and we don't get to learn these things in the UK. So in the UK, we know a lot about the demographics of people who are more likely to leave teaching. Um, we know, you know, by training route that some People who train for certain routes are more likely to leave than others. We know we know teachers who train to teach part time are more likely to leave. Those who train to teach when they're older are more likely to leave. Um, we know ethnic minority trainee teachers um, have very low retention rates. We have no idea why. But, you know, these kind of facts don't tell us anything about whether the people who we want to leave are um, less effective teachers. However, I would argue it doesn't really matter. 
um, at least at the moment, because we've got a supply problem and any teacher who leaves um, just increases the number of teachers we need to recruit into the profession. And and that has an impact on cost and it has an impact on the quality of new recruits. And when a teacher leaves, on average, the teacher that replaces them will be less experienced. And therefore, given we know what we know about um, how teachers get better at teaching in the early part of the career, on average, they are likely to be a less effective teacher, the one that replaces them, at least at the point that they do. Um, it's also been shown in the US that there's a pretty big disruption effect for students' education when you have these high teacher turnover schools. So I'd say, you know, regardless of who is leaving the profession at the moment, we need to do something about our our retention rates. And, and just on a point you made there, I guess we need to make this explicit. We've kind of hinted at it. But is it the case, Becky, to, to the best of your knowledge, that the longer teachers stay in the profession, the better they get? Is that a fair statement to say that experience counts in terms of teacher quality and the impact it has on students? Absolutely. So the greatest way that we accumulate expertise at teaching is through experience and particularly through experience in the first few years of our career. So it's almost always true that if you're a parent, what you don't want is to have an NQT teaching your children, which sounds terrible, but it's true that that NQT will be a much better teacher the next year. <laughs> Jeez. And we'll, t we'll talk later on, we'll dig in about kind of expertise potentially plateauing after a few years. But those first keeping teachers in those first few years, that's where the kind of big gains happen to their expertise. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Got it. Fantastic. I, I want to talk now because um, kind of the other side of the retention coin, I guess, is the hiring coin. Mm. And um, I have to talk to you about this, Becky, because you told one of my favorite stories in your book. And again, this is this is I can't hide my um, my economist genes any longer here. And that's um, Akalov's lemons. I flipping love this one. So can you just can, can you tell the listeners who've been deprived, having never heard this story about that and, and why you talk about it in the case of hiring teachers? So Akalov wrote one of the most famous papers in economics, and it's the story of the secondhand car market. So he was trying to work out what would happen when consumers, um, people who wanted to go out and buy cars, couldn't distinguish between what he called a lemon, which is an American slang for a defective used car, from a peach, which is a well-maintained, reliable used car. Um, and so when we go out and buy cars, we've got this problem because we're, we've got we've got an untrained eye. All the cars on the forecourt of a dealership look pretty much the same. They've all been cleaned up, polished. They all seem to drive fine when we give them a short test drive. But after we've bought them, we get to find out whether we've got a peach or one that runs for years with minimal need for further maintenance or whether we've got a lemon that one experiences problems soon off their after they're driven off the forecourt. So Akalov had this insight, which was that as long as consumers couldn't distinguish the two, they would be um, less willing to pay a full price for a peach. Because how could they when they may well be ending up with a lemon? And he went further than that. And he said, because of that, the more lemons that you think as a buyer there are likely to be as cars on the forecourt, the less willing you're going to be willing to pay for any given car. Mm. His insight was that this explains why garage owners are no longer going to be willing to sell peaches, good cars, 
because they're just not ever going to be able to realise the true price for these cars um, on the forecourt. And the end result of all of this explains why we end up with this vicious downward spiralling quality on the second-hand um, car forecourt, which um, ensures that only the worst cars go on sale. And economists know this as adverse selection. So you may like wonder, what on earth does this story have to do <laughs> with teachers? <laughs> well, we tell the story of Ellen, who learns about adverse selection the hard way, because she's applying for her first teaching job. And she thinks, well, I can just spot a peach, a good school from the job advert. I can go out and I can read the Ofsted inspection uh, report. Um, I can look at the exam results they have and I can choose myself a good school. And she takes a job at a school that looks great. Um, but she had no idea what was going on under the bonnet of that school. And she has a horrific experience in a truly dreadful school um, that that has very, very high teacher turnover and ends up leaving at the end of the year. Um, so she's an example of a consumer, somebody trying to buy a, buy a job um, in a market where she doesn't have great information. But in the, in the market for schools, we've, we've got um, in the market for teachers, we've got exactly the same problem on the other side because head teachers have the opposite problem. They're trying to recruit the most effective teachers and they're trying to avoid the lemons. Um, and although we know that head teachers can get to learn how good the teachers that they currently have are at teaching, they simply can't learn that at the point of interview because all the things that we can do during an interview, um, which is get somebody to teach an example lesson, ask them some questions, all of these things aren't really good ways of learning how effective somebody's going to be um, in their job at the time. Um, so you end up in this situation where kind of logically, if you're ahead, you need to somehow find a way to avoid going out into this external market and having to pick up um, teachers when you really don't know what their quality is um, and it leads to this phenomenon where head teachers really do do rationally do all that they can when they find high quality teachers to keep them in post rather than allow them to continue their career in other places for example when they need when they need promotions and things like that they invent jobs for them um, and, and that's a logical response to a to a situation where we can't work out um, in the ex we call it the external teacher labour market. We can't work out where the good schools are to teach, and we can't work out who the good teachers are. Jeez, and uh, yeah, uh, absolutely brilliant, that, and a, a lovely summary of one of my one of my favourite stories there. And just just to dig a little bit deeper into that, Becky. Then, so we, we've got two issues there. We've got teachers not knowing what schools to apply for, and we've got head teachers either having two options, either trying the best to hold on to the staff that they've got, or if they can't do that, having to go out and try to find staff. So let, let's take the individual teachers first. If And that story, by the way, of Ellen, it broke my heart. That, one. Yeah. that, that was that was where I started going on my downer, that the tissues were out reading that one. It's absolutely heartbreaking. So if you've got teachers listening here, particularly um, possibly less experienced teachers, I know we have a lot of student teachers listening here, and they're, they're looking for schools to apply for. What, what what's the advice what, what what can they do to try and ensure that they end up in a for want of a better phrase a good school it's really tough um 
But given that there are teacher shortages, take your time and be as picky as you can. So before interviews, ask anybody you can, whether it's existing colleagues at the school, tutors at the school, everybody what they know about the school. If you can find a time um, for a school visit before the interview, then do do that. Those school visits can often help you learn what a school is typically like, in particular, what the behaviour of the kids is like. If you're a novice teacher, learning what behaviour is like in a school is really, really important. It may not matter so much if you're five, six years into your career, but I'd argue if you're a novice, this, this is the number one thing you have to get sorted out. Um, I would say during your interview day, do ask explicit questions. Ask how many teachers left the school last year. Um, ask to speak to existing staff if you can during the day. Ask them how long they've been at the school. Ask about typical working hours. So do what you can to find out and be in a position to learn what it's like to work at the school. But it's genuinely a really difficult problem to fix. It's very, very hard to know what a school is like to work at until you've tried it. Jeez, flipping heck. Um, and what about what about head teachers then? So again, we have a lot of head teachers listening. If for whatever reason they're losing a couple of their, their best staff and they need to replace them, is there anything head teachers can do to avoid this problem, Becky? So this is one of these situations where if you can get yourself into a situation where you can, an economist would say expand your own internal labour market, but <laughs> nice. get into a situation where you've got, you're in an ad hoc group of local schools or you're in a multi-academy trust or you're in any sort of situation where you can work together by forming a big enough kind of ad hoc organisation that you can create career paths for valued teachers and you can commit to sharing honest intelligence about the quality of teachers um, when you're hiring. Um, it's obviously true that where job vacancies do arise, you know, just consider all of your options before you're placing job adverts into a market where you can't easily observe quality. Um, Think about all of your existing senior staff who you know and trust. Um, find out which teachers they know at other schools or they've, or they've met through courses or do anything you can to help help develop your pool of kind of reliable teachers that you can draw on when you've got vacancies. And then when it comes to like filling the information deficit as part when, um, when making external hires, We've got this problem with the written reference um, and we talk about it in the book quite a bit um, because at the moment written references are bland when teachers have been through capability and have been forced to leave a school. Um, it often gets to the point where a head teacher will agree with the union that they will write an agreed reference which won't even say that there's been any problems with the quality of teaching that they've had. So I'd just say just don't trust written references. Um, call up former employee employers um, and ask some questions about prospective hires. And in the case of prospective quest of, of questions, um, the specificity of the questions encourages honesty. Um, so ask really, really specific questions about about teacher absence, about their behaviour management, about their collegiality. You can ask questions like, um, did the teacher observations that you did and the pupil test data that you had from the student, uh, from the teacher's classes suggest that they were one of the stronger in your school or one of the weaker in your school? Um, so 
yeah, don't rely on the written reference. And in return, be a good citizen. So encourage other head teachers to call you up for verbal references on those people you've previously employed. Superb. Okay, Becky, I want to move on now to um, motivation. And we've touched a little upon this earlier on in, in the podcast with, with um, particularly the issue of um, distinguishing good teachers be, between, uh, as opposed to weaker teachers. And one thing that was certainly kind of being buzzed around about kind of, I guess probably five years ago, um, I remember it first hearing about it, was this performance-related pay. And as soon as I heard about it, I thought, this is it's all going to be kicking off with this. Because I, I know that... Um, depending on and this is going to sound terrible but depending on what class you've got it's easier to get better results than certain other classes and certainly kind of behavior comes into play and all these kind of things is performance related pay just an absolute disaster and um, can it ever work so performance related play sounds very appealing right you define you define the goal teaching better you set the incentive payment surely people will just do it to get the cash and it works fine in jobs um, where work and targets are well defined. Um, it's frequently used in factory work um, very successfully. Our problem in education, well, there's multiple problems. Our goals in education are rather fuzzy. Um, we can't really measure better teaching, so we use all these very poor proxies. The fact we're using these poor proxies leads to some quite distortionary behavior. But I think most importantly, it's deeply demoralizing to feel you're doing a good job. And yet you can't meet whatever arbitrary mm. targets have, you've been set. And sometimes it's deeply demoralizing because you really do want to get better at teaching. But you just don't know how. Um, in the book, we argue that none of these are the biggest problem. We argue the biggest problem with performance related play is that it, ex it exploits something called controlled motivation. And the problem with these controlled motivational devices is that they've been shown to undermine intrinsic motivation for a job. So we don't argue that, that PRP doesn't just work. We argue it can make things worse. Mm. So um, where does this idea like of intrinsic motivation come from? Well, it comes from a very well validated, in other words, empirically tested psychologically th psychological theory that's called self-determination theory and at its heart it says look human beings are naturally curious we're born with a motivation to explore our environment in order to learn and develop skills and um, this is our intrinsic motivation to do things um, but we will only do them in environments where our three basic psychological needs are in place and the first one is called competence, and that's our need to feel um, that we can demonstrate and improve how good we are at something. We need relatedness. We need the sense of being valued and respected by others. And we need to feel autonomous in the sense that we can be the author of the, our own actions. And the theory argues, and it's been shown to be true, that where these three things of, of competence, relatedness and autonomy are present, then humans can express a natural intrinsic motivation to develop and grow. And that it's important for us not to try and undermine that through the use of controlled motivation devices. 
Now, it's, it's fascinating this because I'm a little bit obsessed with motivation, Becky, right? And I was I, I came across self-determination theory when I was researching for my book and particularly this idea of control, how if, if you feel controlled, then your intrinsic motivation falls down. And the way this sometimes kind of plays out in terms of um, advice for teachers to, to deal with students is to give them more freedom, more choice over the questions they answer, the activities they choose, the way they choose to revise and so on and so forth. But of course, the problem with this is that there's a whole kind of group of research to suggest that when given this freedom, students don't actually make the optimal decisions. And in fact, it's probably a better idea in certain circumstances for the teacher to make those decisions on behalf of the student. Now, just to flip this back to teachers, whenever I'm whenever I'm reading this, I'm thinking now, is it is it necessarily a good thing to give teachers all this kind of freedom? And I know we were particularly talking about performance related pay, how that feels controlling. But just to take another aspect of it, um, I used to think it was a really good idea for a school or a department to say to teachers, you can teach however you want. Here's here's the scheme of work. You've got fractions for two weeks. You teach it however you want to do. And again, that feels motivating because I no longer feel con controlled or constrained. I can do whatever I want. But then I start speaking to the likes of Danny Quinn from Michaela School. or I speak to Greg Ashman from Australia. And a lot of these successful schools seemed to me anyway, to be moving down a route of giving teachers less control with all the kind of almost scripted lessons in the extreme, but certainly kind of directed questions and examples that teachers have to use with their students. So how does this fit in, Becky? Is it, can we go too far with this kind of removing the control that we give to teachers? It's almost so it becomes detrimental to both teachers' kind of success and happiness and, and overall pupil um, successful learning, if that makes any sense at all. It does, and it presents something of a challenge. I think there's a distinction between our sense of autonomy and our actual autonomy. And I think conflict comes when we take autonomy, um, take away autonomy for a particular thing from a teacher who's previously had it. I think it's really tough to tell a teacher 20 years into their career that they must now use the school behaviour mm -hmm. system. And I think that's very different to telling a new teacher that they must use it. And it's these perceptions of autonomy that are important to me. So I personally think new teachers can be completely fine about teaching in a school like Michaela with a highly structured curriculum and lesson plans because their own norms about the kind of choices that they want to have for themselves haven't yet been set. I'm willing to be proved wrong on this, but that's my sense. And I also don't think it's realistic to ask experienced teachers um, to follow highly structured curricula because I think that they would feel the loss of autonomy. But there's something else to say about Michaela, right? Because you get earned autonomy at Michaela. Because as you become an experienced teacher there, you're the one who takes responsibility for the creation of the curriculum and resources. And it's similar to another really large mat that I, I won't name um, that's introducing um, a highly structured, almost DI style, direct instruction style mass curriculum. And it's expecting all new mass teachers to use it. But it's also expecting that the mass teachers will gradually earn autonomy to do their own thing as they get more experienced. Um, and I think that's the compromise that you end up having to make to kind of balance this desire for people to feel autonomous with 
our beliefs that there might genuinely be some better or worse ways to organize a curriculum and to organize um, the teaching of a particular lesson mm, yeah it's again I've, it's one of those I'm, I'm still wrestling with becky this but yeah no i, I appreciate your thoughts on that one um Related to that, related to this issue of, of motivation and moving into kind of teacher development, this is something else I've been wrestling with. I'm hoping you can provide the, the answer for me here. Um, we've, we've kind of talked or argued earlier on in this podcast that, that experience is, is the key to developing teacher expertise and that teachers essentially have to put the hours in in the classroom. And you made the point mm -hmm. that an NQT this year will be a better teacher next year. Does does this mean that we can't fast track teachers to expertise? Is it a case? And this is a really simplistic way of looking at it. But do we just have to get them in a school and keep them in a school and they'll get better? Or is there something specific that I'm thinking particularly um, initial teacher training providers, but also schools in the first couple of years of a teacher's career? Is there something specific they can do to, to help teachers get better, if that makes sense, above and beyond simply keeping them in the classroom? This is a dilemma. In the book, we use the words of Jim Minstrel, um, who's an American, who talked about teaching as an example of an ill-structured problem. <laughs> yes. He said that the most decisions um, that are faced by teachers in the classroom are too idiosyncratic to ever be categorized, such as what your decisions about how to structure a whole class discussion or something like that. He says we can't write the manual for teaching. And that's why the way that we need teachers to accumulate this thing we call expertise is through experience. Um, and so what we're doing when we're building up experience is we're we're building up kind of this process of pattern recognition in which we can draw analogies with our internal database of past experiences um, that allow us to make on the fly, unconscious decisions mm. about how to act in the classroom. So all of that kind of says, well, we need experience to build up expertise. But then there's something else going on um, quite separately, which is that coaching has been shown to be very effective in developing certain routines of the classroom, um, which raises a question for me, which is, should we be in part training to teach if you like, kind of using the Doug Lemoff teachers a champion kind of style where we teach these kind of short routines to master and that um, all trainee teachers learn the same routines. Um, it certainly would have helped me, I feel. But there's some initial teacher training experts and including across the world who I've spoken to about this who strongly say, no, we shouldn't be doing that. And they just believe that teachers need to try out and develop their own style of doing things. And that if we try to embed a standard set of what ultimately become habits of the classroom, then those things might turn out to be second best for that teacher. Now, I think they're wrong, but I'm also aware that I don't have the evidence to prove that they are. And I just really do think that these are testable hypotheses and I think it's one of the most important studies that we need to do. We have to pit traditional initial teacher training which essentially says you've just got to try being a teacher, figuring things out in the classroom and we need to pit it against a teach like a champion, learn the routines style of training 
and we need to see how teachers cope in the two models. We need to look at retention and we need to look at what kind of teacher you turn out to be in the long run if you followed one of these routes. So I wish I could tell you the answer, but we don't know. It's fascinating you say that. I'm, I'm with you on this one, Becky, but I'll tell you what, like three years ago, I wouldn't have been, I, I don't think. And it, again, I just look back at how I used to teach. I was terrible in those first few years. I was terrible because I didn't know how to plan a lesson. I didn't know how to pitch a lesson. And I also didn't know, again, behavior routines. I didn't know good practice for that. I was just figuring it out. And it probably took me about, well, I've still not figured it out, but it probably took me about five or six years to be half decent. And I just think of all the lost opportunities that I feel sorry for the kids I used to teach back in those early days. And I just think surely it's got to be better to provide everybody with a kind of standard way of doing things that's been researched and okay it may not be perfect but at least it's a kind of a toolbox that teachers go into a lesson with and I'm talking here both behavior routines and I'm talking also here kind of the the planned lessons that have been mapped out uh, by either heads of departments or more experienced teachers and then once teachers get two or three years into their career, whenever things have been automated, whenever they've got this this kind of unconscious, these mental models that they can spot things, then they can start tweaking things and start kind of going their own way. I just think expecting teachers to kind of figure it out on the job in those early years, it's got to be wrong, hasn't it, Becky? We have these really strong cultural norms and in initial teacher training in England. One of them is that trainee novice teachers must learn how to do lesson planning and it's pretty much all you do during your pgce mm. hours and hours of endless lesson planning um and yet if you ask someone on their like very first day of their pgce um do you do you expect to be able to make absolute choices about what you do in the classroom like do you expect to be planning all your own lessons or would you like to like have some given to you i'm sure that most novice teachers who had no prior about what the job is would say they would happily accept lesson mm. plans from other people and yet we've somehow accepted that it must be true that on from day one you must plan and design your own lessons now i'm i'm perfectly happy to be proven wrong on this but the people who advocate the structure of initial teacher training that says teachers must learn how to lesson plan from day one have never demonstrated to me what it is they're trying to achieve in the process of that teacher learning how to be a teacher where it is so important that they must do it from day one now they may just they may just argue well the reality of our system is that we only have at most you know about nine months of training and if we don't teach it then it's never going to happen now, I'm sympathetic to that perspective. It is true. Anything we don't teach in those nine months never happens. Um, but if that's the problem, then that then let's fix that problem and let's fix it by reforming the way that we structure teacher training in this country. Um, uh, you know, so, so for me, I, I am I'm simply not convinced that you have to get into lesson planning in order to start learning the routines of the classroom. Absolutely. Flipping heck. Well, uh, one other thing I want to ask you on, on teacher development, Becky, and this, I nearly strained my neck when I was reading this because I was nodding so furiously and I was highlighting it left, right and centre. And I'm going to just read you out a, a couple of sentences here because this is something, it's one of those things that when you read it, you think, yeah, that is obvious. But I had never considered this before and I think it's fundamentally important. So I'm just going to quote you uh, something you wrote here. 
By the time teachers are ready to start integrating more advanced techniques into their repertoire, they are often years away from their formal training and will likely have forgotten the content of those parts of the course. Indeed, they may well have written them off as unworkable after struggling to combine them with other skills early on, before they have the necessary spare bandwidth in working memory to try and assimilate them. Now, what I took from this, Becky, was I, I remember both in my teacher training um, and also in my kind of early years, I was doing things on kind of formative assessment. I was doing things on running inquiries. I was doing things on investigations, all these kind of things. And I didn't have a flipping clue how to, again, either do a starter effectively or ask a question effectively in the, in the classroom. And yet we, we, we seem to put all these advanced techniques, exactly as you say, kind of cram them all in into the first year or two years of a teacher's career not revisit them at any stage later on and they, they kind of almost almost get forgotten be, or as you say written off because they just they are almost by definition unworkable because they're expert teaching techniques and we're asking novices to perform them so it's it's a massive thing this becky so i i just wondered what, what what's the implication of this what, what can we do about this yeah so i think one of the implications is that we should work towards becoming an adequate teacher and an adequate teacher using techniques in the classroom that are reasonably straightforward to master because they um, they are reasonably formulaic and don't use up too much of our bandwidth um, whilst we're trying to implement them in the classroom and we don't worry too much about the more complex techniques. But then our problem is, well, in our system, we have no mechanism for getting from being an adequate teacher, which I would argue we could effectively do by dropping, trying to master some of these techniques early on, to becoming a truly advanced skilled teacher. And that's where we have to rethink how we structure initial teacher training in particular. Um, and in, so in the book, we talk about... Um, ITT needing to be long and thin, not short and fat as it is at the moment, because we just try to we try to teach too much in the first nine months. And as a result, we fail to the point where we write off important techniques um, such as group work or whole class discussion as being things that don't work when in fact they could work, but they can't work for novice teachers because of the bandwidth required to be able to master them in the classroom. So we propose, I think, in the book that initial teacher training should be something that takes place over initially a two year period. And then once you're a teacher, you can't get fully qualified status until you've done at least another two years and perhaps more of formal um, learning um, to work towards a qualification. So what we're proposing is not particularly unusual. It's, it's more aligned with the experience of learning to become a teacher in other countries that recognize how difficult it is um, to master it very quickly. Very, very insightful that I thought that was absolutely key point that that Becky and um, we, we mentioned earlier on and throughout this interview that the experience is the key to, to teachers getting better particularly in those early years but but you make the point later on in the book that eventually um, teacher expertise gained through experience plateaus and um, what why is that so the way that you um, get better at teaching early on is you try out new te techniques you get feedback on whether or not it worked and the feedback's very obvious because you have disastrous lessons when you're a novice <laughs> teacher and then you adjust your practice in response to the feedback. So the question is, why can't you just keep doing that throughout your career? Well, two things start going wrong for you. One thing is that the feedback signal breaks down. 
So once your teaching is quite good, it isn't really obvious whether something that you're trying out in the classroom has worked or not. Because you might choose to try something um, different around the way that you structure your lesson or your quality of your explanations. And in the two possible ways you could have done it, either way, the students seem to be calm, they're sort of behaving themselves, they appear to be engaged. Um, so working out which one's better is very, very difficult. So we can't get this feedback system working once we are reasonably good at teaching. But there's a second problem, and that's that teachers develop habits. So teachers have to develop habits in order to free up that bandwidth we talked about. Because when you're a teacher, you just make millions of decisions in your classroom all the time, and you just can't do them consciously. Um, you have to learn how to do them unconsciously. And teaching is actually quite repetitive, and therefore it's very conducive to habit forming. The problem is that once you've got habits, it then becomes very hard to develop your practice because Developing your practice involves breaking habits. With with regard to that, is because this is a buzzword that well, a kind of buzz phrase that's going around loads at the moment. This concept of deliberate practice is this not the solution to it, Becky? This idea that if you're you've been teaching for five years or whatever, and you, and you decide that okay, I'm going to try something different. You pick a very kind of specific thing that you want to change. And you try and get feedback on it, possibly not by the, the kind of the students giving you feedback, but you invite a colleague into your lesson. You tell them the very specific thing that you're going to be working on. You say, watch me, give me feedback on it or either film it or something like that. Is this the key for experienced teachers to gain that additional expertise by picking really minute areas and kind of hammering them until they they, they kind of make a difference? Does that make sense? So. It's the best idea we've got about how to uh, improve teaching practice once you're an experienced teacher. I mean, so the issues are, I mean, on the feedback part, because it's not obvious to us ourselves as teachers whether things work or not, mm. um, we've got a problem. It's also not always obvious to observers, even when they come into your class, whether you are improving in the way that you want to. Um, so that can be tricky. And in simple practical terms, we, we can't have someone watch us do something 50 times. It's not <laughs> realistic. Like at most, we get an observer watch us do something once. I do think there's another problem with deliberate practice and with coaching, um, at least as it's currently conceived. Um, and I think that's that is really contested at the moment what pedagogical techniques are appropriate for particular children and subjects. Um, and to the extent that they are contested, then we can't always necessarily agree on what the practice is, what the practice should be. So at the moment, I think that these um, these rubric based coaching programs that have been um, tested widely in the US and shown to be um, work really, really well. I think they're very generic. Um, I think they're probably pretty good at getting teachers from zero to, uh, let's say, six out of ten. I'm less sure that they know how to get somebody to 10 out of 10 in teaching a subject. Um, and I, you know, I think our principal problem there is that we don't know enough about what constitutes um, effective learning or indeed effective teaching in, in a subject.
God, it's flipping tricky, this. Got it. Perfect, mm. perfect, Becky. Well, I, I want to, um, last thing I want to just talk to you about, um, about your, your book, Teacher Tap, is just a return to workload, because it's what, what we started with. You, you hinted at this whenever you were uh, describing some of your favourite Teacher Tap or most interesting uh, results. Um, do you have any other data on teacher workload? I'm particularly interested in a couple of things. Um, like, how many hours are teachers working and, and what are they spending their time doing? And, and is there a difference between either primary and secondary school teachers? teachers or maths teachers and English teachers what what kind of data do you have on on how teachers are spending their time Becky so when when teachers just asked how many hours did you work last week and this is how they were asked in the DfE's workload challenge it's it's how they're asked in the OECD TALIS studies we get these reports of things like between 55 and 59 hours a week um, and, and the reports have been going up over the past decade. Mm. Should we believe them? Could you could you say how many hours you worked last week? Like, I couldn't. No. Um, so I'm you know, I'm kind of dubious about these reports. What we do know from OECD TALIS is that we know that English teachers are not um, working uh, longer classroom hours they're not high by international standards it's that teachers report doing more things outside the classroom um, and one of the things we've been trying to do on teacher tap is learn more just about exactly what the working day is like so rather than having to ask about a week we can ask the simple question about how many hours did you work yesterday when we ask it during a typical working week, about seven, seven out of ten teachers say they work more than they worked more than ten hours yesterday, which is Jeez, a lot. Flipping heck. We can also ask like about like what, exactly what you're doing. So, in, in one week, we asked sixty percent had done three or more additional duties, such as um, being at the gates, break time, and things like that, in a week. Fifty percent that week had run an extra club after school. Uh, 50% had had three or more after school meetings that week. Um, they could be anything from a meeting with the parents or with other colleagues and so on. Um, uh, so, and one in five had marked for more than seven hours in that past week, <laughs> which is a whole day just spent marking. Um, what? But, but what we do know about teachers is they have this incredibly long day. So like 40% of them get to work before 7.30, which is which is something that the rest of the world is not doing. Um, <laughs> they're often spending quite a long time commuting. So 40% are spending over an hour commuting each day in total. Um, they often do burn out and leave school at something like 4.30 or 5 o'clock, but they go home. Lots of them have um, families and other duties at home and in the evenings. And then we find that they switch back on again. You know, so 40% on any particular night are marking in front of the TV at night. And then there's the scourge of the out-of-hours emails. You know, when I was a teacher, email did not exist. Um, and yet now, <laughs> teachers are spending an enormous amount of time answering emails. Um, we also asked them this question, um, if, you could, if you could choose your ideal working hours, and you have to take into account any loss of salary, um, how, many hours a, how many days a week would you like to work? And the majority said four days a week. Only a third of teachers said, I want to work five days a week. OK, so they 
they they would have to lose the salary if they went out to four days mm. a week. So this is a really striking and worrying question. And it's worrying to me because at the moment we've got loads of politicians going out there saying we've got to sort out flexible working. And it's like, well, hang on a second. We've got like 40 percent of teachers who are willing, who want to actively drop one day a week if you if you would let them. And if we let them do that, we'd need to find 40,000 extra teachers. Jeez. Um, so so this can't be the solution. The solution has to be reducing working hours. Uh, when we ask when we ask teachers the question in that fleeting moment when you consider leaving teaching and everyone has these fleeting <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> every job. Right. Incidentally, only one in five claim they've never had that fleeting moment in the last year. <laughs> um, so more than anything else, a third of teachers say it's workload that's made them have that fleeting feeling of I need to get out of this job. Jeez. Um, and and is it, oh, sorry, Becky, can I just ask well, on that again? Is it, are you picking up any trends that, that some subjects are, are worse than others for this? Uh, or again, is there a difference between the phases, primary and secondary? Do you have that kind of data? Yeah, we do. There isn't a, a difference in working hours between phases. There is a difference um there's not a difference for example between how much primary teachers um mark at the moment they have different habits around marking um they're most likely to think their marking isn't that valuable um but 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 no there's no difference between primary and secondary there are some differences about how teachers spend their time so there's some subjects that have higher marking but then that's and then that's balanced out by other things. So if you teach some of these um, uh, art and creative subjects, you're much more likely to be running after school clubs. Mm, yes. um, and that's the thing that takes up your time rather than marking. And you mentioned before um, about happiness, how um, I think you said NQTs weren't particularly any unhappier than, mm. than more experienced teachers. But just generally, are teachers fed up, Becky? Like what, what's the, what kind of data have you got on how happy we all are? So there's a paper that's come out this year using the 2013 OECD TALIS data that's measured job satisfaction. Um, and it's showing that teachers in England have lower job satisfaction than most, almost any other country in the world. Jeez. So, and we also know, we know this from Understanding Society data that NFER published yesterday, that when people leave teaching, they see a big rise in their life satisfaction. And that doesn't happen when people leave other professions. Um, we asked about this question about burnout on teacher tap just before half term. Um, so almost one in 10 teachers said yes to the following statement. I feel completely burnt out and often wonder if I can go on with this job. I am at the point where I may need some changes or I may need to seek some sort of help. And another 10% on top of that said I'm experiencing symptoms of burnout at work that won't go away and are on my mind a lot. You know, so I think I think we've got a problem. And I and I say this to people who say um, in other professions, people work long hours and, you know, look at law, look at banking. You know, we, we should just accept that we have to work long hours. And this is my problem with their argument. Teaching, for better or worse, is a feminized profession. It's also a profession where you kind of want people to be doing the job who like ch children. So when these people have children themselves, Ideally, you want the job to be compatible with going home and being able to see your own children. 
because if you don't, they will leave teaching and that is what they are doing. So we need to make this a job that is compatible with going home after work and seeing your own family. Um, and I get that law's not like that. And I get that banking is not like that. But that's not what, where we are. And th those are not the professions that we are competing with when we're trying to persuade people to become teachers and, in, and to stay in the profession, even though they've got a young family. Yeah, that's a really, really, imp a really important point that I'll, I'll never forget. So again, whilst we're whilst whilst it's out in the open now that I did um, economics at university, I might as, well tell, <laughs> might as well tell this story very quickly. Um, so yeah, I, I did I did economics at Cambridge. So all my friends on my course went off to be investment bankers and hedge fund managers and all this kind of stuff. But I thought, no, I'm going to choose the happy route. I'm going to choose teaching. So I'll be poor, but I'll be incredibly happy and fulfilled. And I remember those first kind of two or three years, I was on the phone to my best friends and like they they were, weren't getting home until kind of 8 p.m. at night. And I, fair enough, sometimes I was getting home at five or six, but then I was marking for three mm -hmm. or four hours. And then I was working at the weekends and I was wor working every Saturday and I used to take Sunday afternoon off. And this was about for about three or four years. And the, the, the annoying thing was I wasn't particularly happy and I certainly wasn't particularly rich. And my friends were the opposite of both of those. They were they were really motivated. They were mm. absolutely rolling in the money. And the further they got through their kind of profession, the, the easier their jobs got, the less hours they were working. They've all, all got families now. It's very kind of compatible with with, with a family lifestyle. And mm. I remember. And so, uh, again, as, as listeners may know, I put it on Twitter that me and my wife are expecting our first baby in January. And one of the main reasons that we've kind of delayed having a family for so long is I just my full time teaching job just wasn't compatible with it. I thought I'll never see this mm -hmm. child like they'll be an absolute stranger to me. We've um, we've got a big problem, haven't we, Becky? And the, the last question I wanted to ask you on this before we all burst into tears and, and feel mm -hmm. comple completely depressed is that I kind of get conflicting messages because I read a lot of what Ofsted are putting out and they're very active these days on Twitter and they're very much saying that, yeah, Ofsted will do not expect all this kind of um, marking and triple marking and all this feedback and all this kind of stuff and these excessive workload is a really bad thing and yet it's still going on so like who I, 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 this isn't the right way to frame it but who's to blame because if Ofsted are saying they don't expect it but schools are still kind of mounting this kind of workload and this pressure on, on teachers is it schools getting the wrong end of the stick from Ofsted or are Ofsted still to blame is it a time lag thing will it take a while for it to filter through that things are changing or, or are things not changing well what can we do Becky in the book we um talk about this idea from these sociologists called DiMaggio and Powell called institutional isomorphism and it's a lovely phrase um, and it's a phrase that kind of um, says well why are all these schools doing all these kind of workload inducing activities um, and they're all doing the same they're all herding towards doing the same activities and yet they all seem to be rather Ill illogical in the sense that they don't seem to really be connected mm. with kids learning anything so how can this happen and they say well these kinds of behaviors arise in systems for three reasons and they say one of them is the coercive forces and these are the forces that include Ofsted and Ofsted themselves had a very big problem because Ofsted 
cannot inspect teaching and learning in a school. They cannot inspect it because they don't have enough time, um, because we don't have long inspections anymore. So in these fleeting inspections, all they do is do a fly past and they get the head teacher who has become the de facto inspector in our system to demonstrate through reams of paperwork that they know the quality of teaching and learning in the school. So that was their coercive force that DiMaggio and Powell said it was in place. But they also talked about mimetic forces or mimicking behavior. And this is this kind of frenzied behavior where we don't actually know how to make schools better. And so what happens is we see a, an outstanding school that's doing something. And once upon a time, Ofsted used to produce these case studies that helped us learn what they were doing. And so the triple marking phenomenon came about through a through an Ofsted case study of an outstanding school in, in London, um, where they described this amazing sort of feedback activity that was going on in the school. And other head teachers who are running schools that are not outstanding and they don't know how to make their school better think we can do that. And so that's the mimetic behavior, the copying behavior that goes on in a system where ultimately nobody knows how to make schools better. And then they talked about the normative forces in the system. And so they said, well, look, we've, we, we have a generation now of head teachers who've cut their teeth, probably as assistant head in charge of data, in an era where their belief is that their job as a head teacher is to know exactly what is going on in terms of teaching and learning in every single classroom. And the way that they can do that in a school is they can do it through asking teachers to document what is going on. Mm. And then we have and then we have a teaching workforce that's that's grown up in this kind of era where we've we've come to believe that because on the margin it is always possible to do something to help kids succeed and to close inequalities and all the other things that we want to believe it's true and that we can do because we've come to believe this kind of narrative we've we've entered this kind of frenzied behavior in schools of trying to do everything no matter how marginal the gains to try and close the attainment gap and so on so they so they would say you know it's not so simple and if you want to sort the problem out you have to think about all three of those forces the cultural factors that we ourselves as a profession have now pinned in place uh, that heard these very kind of deep set beliefs that is that is is the job of management to implement audit cultures in their schools so they can monitor things that ultimately it is my belief they cannot monitor Jeez, and yeah, you've you've teed us teed us up beautifully to talk about the, the next couple of things, which is progress and pupil premium. But ju just before we do that, Becky, just want one final question here, and feel free not to answer this one if you don't want. But <laughs> you, you've 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 two children um, of your own. If if in a few years they grow up and say, "Mom, I want to be a teacher," what do you think? Knowing what you know about schools and all the res all the results from Teacher Tap and so on, would, would you advise your children to go into teaching? I still think it's a really rewarding job um, and I think there's loads and loads of jobs out there that aren't as rewarding and aren't as enjoyable and aren't as kind of diverse on a daily basis as teaching is. So I I still think even with all the bad stuff that's going on now um, and the burden and the working hours, I, I still think it's a job worth doing. Um, but I just think we can make the job so much better and we can do it without damaging pupil learning. Um, and, and that's why 
I'm so passionate about arguing that we can reduce working hours. We, we can just do it um, and it won't damage outcomes for students and we should just do it. Got it. Super. Very, very positive answer. That I like that, Becky. Um, I want to talk now about me, uh, measuring progress. And the, the reason I want to talk about this is two, twofold, really. The first is it's just a massive issue um, in schools. It's a massive focus on schools. And um, Tom Sherrington was on this podcast and he was speaking about some of the practices that, that he's seen and he's very much think schools have become obsessed with data and trying to measure things that, that can't be measured and also secondly I, I the first time I, I ever see, saw you talk was at the festival of education where you spoke about measuring progress and my, my jaw was on the floor it was an absolutely fascinating presentation so I just want to dig into a couple of the things and um, from that so the first question is a bit of a bit of a broad one but why is it so hard to accurately measure student progress and what are the some of the things that schools do that just don't actually measure student progress accurately so we've got two problems. One is that the tests we tend to use to measure student progress are short, about 45 minutes long. And short tests are OK for working out approximately where a student is on a bell curve. That's attainment. But progress, or at least relative progress, which is the thing we tend to measure in the UK, essentially is trying to measure how much a student has moved up or down a bell curve over the course of a year. And this is a problem. It's a problem because students rarely move that much up or down bell curves in a year. Um, it's, it's partly because the amount we learn in a single year relative to the amount we already knew at the start of the year and the variation in that across children. So the amount we learn is relatively small compared to the pre-existing variation in attainment. So when we try to measure um, progress, we've got two fuzzy measures of attainment, one from the start of the year that's not very precise and one from the end of the year, which is not very precise. And in the bell curve, they're likely to be quite close together. So we take the difference between them to get the movement and we've just got an enormously fuzzy measure of progress. And it's only ever going to give you meaningful information about the extremes, those kids who made stellar or yeah. terrible progress over the year. And I suspect the teachers could just drop, draw the list up of those outlier students without reference to the test data at all. So this fuzziness um, is our number one problem. Our second problem is that a test score captures two things. One is the student's mastery of the knowledge domain. That's the thing we want to know. And the second is their ability to demonstrate that during the test. And that in turn depends on the environment in which the test was sat. So we can only benchmark um, how our own class is doing relative to other classes, either in our own or across schools. But we ideally want to know and keep constant the environmental circumstances under in which tests are sat. That's really interesting, though, because I think you made this point um, in the Festival of Education talk about the stakes that, that students perceive tests to have. And this really rang true for me because we at our school were a member of um, the Pixel Club. And the, the idea there is particularly when the new maths GCSE came in and we had no grade boundaries and no way of, um, of kind of measuring where, where students were at or anything like that. All the schools kind of came together. And the idea was that the kids sat mock exams, sent the results in and there was tens of thousands of students so therefore you could kind of 
plotter distribution or whatever and get some rough idea of where where gray boundaries might be but of course if kids are perceiving the stakes differently in different schools if some if some teachers are saying to kids look this is just a practice exam don't worry about it and if other kids if other schools are saying you've two weeks to revise for this we're doing it in exam conditions and this is really really serious and, and kids are taking it really really serious then any kind of comparison between those schools is is almost meaningless is is that right that's right and so this is one of the one of the ways i started thinking about this is because i i had um friends who run multi-academy trusts who were running um some of these um standardized tests that you can buy from gl or yes. nfer other people um called me up and they said they said We've just like run one of these tests and like the data is really terrible, um, the progress data. And like, can you tell us whether we're really bad or not? And so I was like, send it over, send it over. And it really started me thinking like, what on earth are these tests and how they're being used? But the way we kind of got in, into thinking about this in a much bigger systematic way was because um, – Every time a child takes part in an education endowment trial, almost every time, they end up sitting some of these standardized tests at the start and end of the trial project. And um, we, ha we were holding the whole of the EEF database at Data Lab where we help them manage their back end and routinely get it matched onto the National Pupil Database so that when these children go on to take key stage tests, we can, we can match the data in. And it gave us like the very first opportunity to really take what is, you know, commercially sensitive data and, and it was being held in one place and allow us to like look at what the statistical properties of these tests were. Mm. And we started looking um, at some of these things. So this is an example for, that I showed during the talk from one of the EEF trials. And there were 24 schools in the trial. And in the, during the trial, um, which took place during Key Stage 2, we ended up figuring out that there were four different ways of measuring progress of the children in English <laughs> and maths during Key Stage 2. There was, first of all, the way the government sanctioned way, which is looking at progress between the key stage one and the key stage two tests. But we had some other ways. We could look at how they did between the key stage one test and a test that was sat one month before the sats were set. And then we could look at another way, which was to look at the start of the trial in year five and then to use the key stage two as an outcome. Or we could look at the start of the trial in year five and the end of the trial, which was that one month before the SATs. Mm. So we've got these four different measures of English progress and maths progress, um, and we've, we can calculate them for each school. And when you do, you just show there's almost no relationship between which schools you judge to be better and which schools you judge to be less effective on each of these measures. Um, and that was only one trial, but we were able to do that. I mean, so far we've done it for 13 EEF trials where we could collect this type of data and, and just really show that the inferences we make about how effective schools are, are are highly sensitive to the test data that we're using. And just to pause on that, Becky, that's crazy, that, isn't it? That's That's significant, the fact that we can't even say who the good schools are, as you've just demonstrated there. That That's significant, right? It is. But it also obviously also raises the question, like, why? Um, and of course, there's issues about um, if you're taking a if you're taking one of these commercial tests like midway through a key stage, 
one of the problems is our national curriculum is not very specific about exactly what you should study when. So you end up with this problem of misalignment of the test with your own school's curriculum. So for one of my one of my friends in his multi-academy trust, he'd done really badly because they, cho they, they just chose not to deliver some particular, I don't know, statistics um, part of the curriculum in year eight. And as a consequence, the entire year group was just getting zero on three <laughs> questions because it's a short test. Getting zero on three questions is a big deal. And it's yes. enough to then tell your maths department you're not up to scratch. So that's an issue, right? But we, we, we figure the bigger issue is the environmental circumstances surrounding the test. And that's a particular issue in trials where these aren't even part of like the performance management of pupils or schools or anything else. You know, we, we don't know how or why these tests are being thrown into schools um, during trials. And when we talk about the environmental circumstances surrounding a test, we talk about what's happening in the run up to the test. Mm. So are you telling the kids about the test in advance? Are you telling them to revise? Are you telling them what to revise for? Have any teachers seen the test in advance? Um, uh, are you telling parents about it? Have you told the kids that you're going to tell the parents the scores? You know, all of this determines how students feel about the test and what they choose to revise for, if anything. And then you've got persistence during the test itself, which is a separate thing. Um, and that's just simply the effort that the students put in to answering the test questions. Um, and there's nice experiments from around the world that show that kind of persistence during a test itself is a big cultural issue, um, most likely in our country. So there's so, so there's a lovely experiment where um, students in a students in America and in China turn up to sit a test. And they randomize the classrooms and in half the classrooms, they say, OK, if you do well in this test and um, get above a certain mark, we're going to give you a payout. I can't remember what it is. Let's say it's $30 or something right. like that. So they say this in America and China. And in America, what happens as a consequence is that the kids work really hard on the test and they and they do much better than the control group who aren't told about any payout at all. And they're just sitting there as American students taking the test. But then in China, there is no impact of this announcement at all um, because the students just try really hard and persist on the on the test, regardless of whether Jeez. they're going to get some cash or not. But it leads you to worry, right? It leads you to worry about PISA and um, and the effort that students put in across the world when they've told that they've got to do some PISA test during the lesson. Um, and, and you know, we have to ask ourselves in England, well, which country are we more like, America or China? And I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> Flipping out. Well, last question on, on the progress one, and it's, it's a biggie, Becky, but if, if we've got schools listening and whether they're, uh, sorry, teachers listening, whether they're heads of departments or head teachers or even individual teachers and um, what what how how should they go about measuring progress more accurately or should we just abandon the the, the whole notion of it what well, what should what what's the implication what's the takeaway from this i think you've got to think about very hard about whether you need to measure progress remember measuring progress isn't measuring attainment attainment is really useful because it tells us what students know but what is progress telling us is it telling us whether students made enough effort? Because if it is, then it's a very poor proxy for that. And we can measure that more reliably in other ways. Like, have you done your homework? Do you make an effort during class? Is it telling us whether the student's meeting their potential? Well, 
No, it tells us nothing at the, of the sort because it doesn't draw on any points about anything about what we know about the true cognitive capabilities of the child in question. So, but, you know, if you insist on trying to measure progress, and in any case, this, this rule of thumb is really important for measuring attainment too. This is what you need. You need standardized tests. By standardized, I mean that you've got some external benchmark that says what is good. If you don't have that, all you've got is an internal ranking of your own kids from the best to the worst, which doesn't tell you much at all. The tests have to have known reliability, so you have to be clear about what you can and can't infer from them. They have to be tests of a standardised curriculum where all the schools who are taking the test are sitting the same curriculum. That's what makes GCSE so great, right? We all have the same curriculum and they have to be sat in standardised test conditions with a standardised appreciation of the test stakes by both the pupils and by the teachers so that's pretty demanding right yes but it's a, a useful checklist right it's uh, it, again it's 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 demanding but potentially doable i mean this this kind of rubbishes the idea of um kind of using departmental written tests um as kind of end of year or end of uh, end of termly ways to measure progress because that's what happens isn't it schools are obsessed with progress schools are obsessed with almost at a minimum of doing a christmas assessment an easter assessment and a summer assessment and um, the christmas and easter tend to be kind of cobbled together by members of the department whether using past gcse questions or, or questions they've written themselves maybe the end of year one is a, a mock a, a past gcse exam or something like that but then those tests become kind of high stakes tests in the eyes of the teachers because mm -hmm. they're then used to determine whether a kid has gone from a level 6b to a 6a whatever whatever on earth that means so that that practice is would you go as far as to say it's just wrong or it's pointless or it's it's dangerous well what is it becky but that has to stop does it well it's dangerous if it's being used in a school in a teacher accountability system where mm. performance of teachers is being judged on it um it's potentially dangerous if we're giving um students information that's um unhelpful or wrong mm. so if we're telling a student that they their progress has been poor this year when in fact we can't say anything reliable about it um, truth be told in the data um, we could potentially could potentially be very demotivating for students um, because we make incorrect inferences um, but most of all I would argue it is normally pointless I rarely um, come across teachers who can articulate to me why they need to measure progress rather than attainment that's interesting. I'll, I'll leave that one dangling there for listeners to see if they've got an answer to that. That's, that's lovely, that. Um, final big thing I wanted to speak to you about is pupil premium. But we'll just do this briefly, Becky, and that's because you've mm -hmm. recently done a, an excellent Radio 4 program on this that I'll put a link to in the show notes. So this will be more of a kind of teaser for that if people want to listen further. But pupil premium is obviously um, a, a big, big issue in schools. Schools are kind of measured against it. Teachers are held accountable for the performance of their pupil premium students. So just a couple of questions on this. Firstly, is there a pupil premium gap, Becky? Is there a difference between the attainment of, of kind of students who are labelled as pupil premium students versus non-pupil premium students? Yes, there is. There's a big gap. So at GCSE, 44% um, of, of pupil premium students achieved a good pass in English and Maths GCSE compared to 71% of other pupils. Flipping heck. 
But we don't know, and we don't know why. Um, we do know the gaps emerge amongst children who are sitting together in the same classroom. And therefore, things like inequalities in access to good schools um, are, you know, could, could be a contributor, but they can't be the key explanation for this. Um, we know there's inequalities in home support for learning, um, but we don't know a lot about exactly how and why they matter. And we think there's probably genetic factors involved. Um, the thing we don't know is whether that pupil premium gap is changing. And the reason why we don't know is because on the one hand, we keep changing our qualifications. In particular, in the case of GCSEs, we've recently changed the scale from A star to G to 9 to 1, which in itself has, has caused changes in, in the distribution of what kinds of students get what kinds of point scores um, on the mapping that we use. But we also regularly change the benefit system. And every time we change the benefit system, we change the group of students who are entitled to free school meals and therefore who become eligible for the pupil premium. So to try and monitor the gap over time, well, we say it's like moving the goalposts because we're moving the qualifications and changing the team because mm. we're changing the entitlements. Flippinac. Yeah, uh, absolute minefield. But what what are some of the things you see schools trying to do to close this pupil premium gap, Becky, that, that you don't think are particularly effective? We see some quite weird stuff. Um, <laughs> Labelling the books, um, put, have, requiring teachers um, to put PP on their seating plans or in their mark books. That's something that's frequently asked to do. We ask that question on TeacherTab. Um, we tell teachers that they should pay more attention to pupil premium children in class. Mm. Uh, we say that they should mark their books first. So these are kind of weird things we ask them to do. Um, we are, we schools spend loads of money on things that are incredibly valuable, but that shouldn't be expected to close the attainment gap, which in a sense violates the purpose of the pupil premium as it's currently conceived. School uniforms, music lessons, school trips, like hugely culturally and financially important things, but, but they're not going to close the attainment gap. Um, and then we kind of see this kind of interventionist approach going on. Because the whole point about the pupil premium, at least in the way that David Laws explains that it was designed, is that the money should be spent on pupil premium children. Mm. But your problem as a school is your basic core business is to scoop up 30 kids and stick them into a class together. <laughs> and you, you literally don't segregate pupil premium children. So it's very hard to spend money on them unless you take an interventionist approach, which is that you scoop them out of the class and give them something different. Um, and my criticism of how that has taken place when schools have interpreted the pupil premium policy in its purest sense is that we're selecting a group of children who don't have a well-identified set of needs. They're not the poorest because free school meal entitlement is a very poor proxy for income. They're not the most educationally in need. And actually, that group average that I described at the start, the 44% versus mm. the 71%, that masks massive variation within the group. So there are, there are pupil premium students who are very highly attaining, who do not have the same sets of needs as other pupil premium students. Um, and, and in large schools, you have to organize resources around groups because you can't personalize everything. I mean, that, that's an impossible thing to do. But we should organize things around groups of children who are educationally have meaningful needs. 
the group who don't have fluent and clear handwriting, the group who cannot yet read fast enough, the group who don't know their times tables, the group who seem to have difficulty getting to school on time, the group who when you ask them um, say that they didn't talk to a parent about school yesterday. So these, these are well identified groups with clear educational needs and we should be dealing with those educational needs. Regardless of whether they're pupil premium or not, this is kind of yes. so not got it, got it. That, again, it's one of those things. It makes perfect sense, but I just you just don't see it being done, do you? you as you as you say, if, it, if it's an interventionist strategy, it's let's take the pupil premium students out. And I, I've seen this myself. Like we've done maths intervention with um, kind of pupil premium students in a in a previous school I used to uh, talk uh, work work at, and. Um, it was the uh, completely different needs, it, literally down to the different topics that they struggled mm -hmm. with and, and so on. And it was an absolute waste of time. It was the most kind of heterogeneous group I've ever seen in my life, whereas it would have been much better to do two different interventions, one specifically on kids who struggled on percentages, whether the pupil premium or not, and then one on kids who couldn't communicate mathematically or something like that. Again, it makes so much sense, Becky, but you, you, for some weird reason, you just don't see it being done. And um, final question on pupil premium. The other things you mentioned there about the um, marking pupil premium books uh, first and labeling them on the seating plan am i to take it that they literally have no positive benefit whatsoever is that are they just a waste of time well nobody knows because nobody's run the randomized control trial that tests it i would argue we probably shouldn't bother and there's better things we can test mm. before we move on to doing that Got it. That makes perfect sense. Um, well, I just want to end with a, a few reflections, Becky, if that's all right. And then I'm going to hand over to you mm. for your big three. Um, what is an example of one of the most important pieces of research that you've read? So, I mean, at the core of writing The Teacher Gap, a lot of what we say hangs on this article by Kraft and Pape. And um, this, this is the article that argues that teachers who work in um, very supportive school environments actually manage to get better at teaching throughout their career in a way that others don't. And it's a really beautiful piece of work um, because it gives us one possible route to understanding how um, we can help teachers get better at teaching and we can essentially help them get by getting better at teaching through changing the culture and the leadership of our schools um, but it is it is a piece of work that at the moment kind of stands on its own um, and we're in desperate need of a replication of the study because we really shouldn't be hanging our policy ideas on on just one study so that's the one I'd pick that's great, absolutely great choice and um, second question Becky what about an example of a surprising piece of research that you've come across so um Roland Fryer wrote a piece of work that was out, I guess, as a working paper a couple of years ago, but it's just been published in the American Economic Review, where he'd run a randomized control trial looking at um, whether it's better to have subject specialist teachers in um, an elementary or primary schools in the U.S., so they'd literally run a randomized control trial where they took these schools and rather than every teacher having one class that they teach everything to in the traditional model that we follow in primary schools, um, so for the most part in the UK, um, they switched them around so that you either you either doubled up and taught maths twice to each of the classes. It was, you know, say, a two form entry school or you teach English twice. Mm. Um, and he and the study showed um, that 
that practice of having teachers who were specialising um, actually led to a deterioration in standards. You're joking. And I was astonished. I, I, did, I did not see that. <laughs> I, I was just ready then to come in with a, a, an example of where I've seen that work really well. I didn't. That was a big twist. I didn't see that coming. It led to a decrease. What, why? So, and this is, this is why it's so interesting to me, because you then start thinking, what is it that teachers know? Well, teachers are experts in their subjects, but they also become experts in children. And one of the things about primary teachers that I think those of us who've taught in secondary neglect is really how well primary school teachers know their children yes. and the power of that in the classroom um, in facilitating, you know, the organization of teaching and learning. And there's been other studies that have really started kind of backing up this idea that knowing your students is really really important and so there's this thing that sometimes they that people do where a primary school teacher can move up with the same class so yes. one year they teach year three and they move up and they teach year four with the same class and again in the US they call this looping staying with the same class and moving up um, there have been studies that show that looping with your class and staying with them it can it can lead to academic gains in in English and maths um, when you stay with them for the for the second year now the effect size in that study of, of the looping is not massive but in education policy look we're always in the business of marginal gains mm. and so it's completely like violated all of my belief systems that I had about kind of what's right and what's wrong in primary school and how we should sort out primary maths teaching because I always assumed that well if we could of course we would get specialist maths teachers in primary school but I'm now no longer sure that that is the answer flipping out Becky that that's that's thrown me that and again from coming from my secondary school perspective I guess I'm kind of wrestling against two kind of which I think are conflicting ideas the first is that it, it seems logical that it's a good idea that if you've got a good relationship with a class and um, that you take taken through from year seven right through to year 11 to GCSEs and I, mm. I know they've been some of my most rewarding teaching experiences when I've taken a class right through you know everything about that class you know all the kind of personal stories and all that and it's, it's quite a magical thing and again it sounds really cocky but by the time you get to year 11 you've had a class for five years no one can teach that class as well as you can because you know everything about those students but then the kind of flip side is um you I, I think there's a valid argument but again this may be just um my complete kind of preconceptions that's not based on any evidence whatsoever that you kind of become specialists in a, in a certain given area so you get like the the cd the old cd borderline gcse specialist maths teacher somebody mm -hmm. who will be given kind of three or four year 11 groups of that of that ilk um and was absolutely an expert at getting a grade c or you get the kind of um old grade a star and now grade nine specialists who always take the top set um, um at gcse at year 11 and are really good at pushing them on and also Bruno Reddy when he was on the show he was t telling me about um, when he first started in King Solomon Academy and it was a new school and they only had year sevens in there and then the second year they only had year eights mm. he would teach essentially the same lesson four times a day to yeah. different year eight classes and by the time he taught it for the fourth time he was absolutely nailing that lesson because he'd, he'd had time to iron out all his mistakes he knew how to pace it and all that kind of stuff so 
do those two ideas kind of go in conflict to each other? Is, is yeah. it best to, yeah. They absolutely strange, go in conflict it? to each other, right? So there's another liter- entirely separate literature that says at least for novice teachers, being able to teach the same subject material, mm. in other words, the same subject to the same year group on a loop is helpful. Yes. Um, and and so um if if you can get rid of parallel timetabling, for example, and you can get your NQTs into the school and you can say to them, you're just going to teach a load of year seven maths and maybe a bit of year mm. and some year 10 and nothing else all year. Um, that is the best thing to do, at least for novice teachers. And then there's this entirely separate literature that, that says the opposite, which says, actually, um, if you can invest in the class and because you're investing in the class, it necessarily means only teaching things once, then you get huge returns. So for me, the question is, like, how do we reconcile these two facts um, and how can we learn about the circumstances under which um, we should be encouraging students? Um, teachers to stay with the same class and under what circumstances should we be encouraging teachers to double up and repeat teaching the same thing as much as possible and I'm sure that there are ways to resolve this but at the moment the literature hasn't managed to do this and these are like these are critical questions because when you start trying to unpack these questions they all come back to the timetable at least in secondary schools so when Chris Husbands um, used to run the Institute of Education and we used to chat about education policy, pretty much every conversation we would have would end up talking about the timetable. Everything, all the problems in schools start and end with timetables because it's the timetable that means we can't give newly qualified teachers optimal timetables or indeed anyone optimal timetables. It's the timetable that drives a lot of the decisions about how and when you introduce ability setting taking place in schools. Mm. And actually one of the worst things about ability setting is that it forces you to have this parallel timetabling, which means that nobody can double up on their teaching Um, so so you know everything revolves around what is the organization of this timetable and our problem is we haven't even got the basic principles in place of what would we ideally like to do if the timetable wasn't a constraint for our teachers flipping it it's it's annoying when the research doesn't just nicely agree with each other isn't it it's annoying for everyone except for the researchers who get to do more research (laughs) that's true um final couple of questions for your reflection is there an example becky of something important that you've changed your mind about okay so this is a big one so i think studying modern economics leads you to think that public policies are amenable to interventions or simple policy changes that can make things work better Mm. and I think it does that because economics is always about holding everything constant and just changing one thing on the margin it makes you believe that you can do that but I now think that most institutions and I include schools in the education system in this are complex in ways we really don't understand And they're just not really amenable to us trying to change one thing whilst keeping everything else as they are. And I think we'd do better to think of them as kind of messy ecosystems. And I think that has implications. Um, I think some of the implications are possibly that you just have to keep policy really simple, that you can't have complex rules because complex rules will never do the things you want them to do. They just create bizarre distortions in policy. 
And I think you can't pretend that you can control from the centre with these top-down policies from sanctuary buildings, which is the DfE building in London. Um, instead, I think we have to try and get things right from the ground up. And that's why I really believe the route to ensuring we have successful schools is basically to ensure we've got a teaching profession that itself is filled with decent people who are inculcated with some sorts of values that are likely to lead to schools creating the kinds of experiences and outcomes that we want for kids. Nice. Flipping it. Good, good cracking answer that Becky and um, last reflection from me uh, for well from you sorry and um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started out in your career that you know now everyone else is bluffing too <laughs> <laughs> I like it very 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 true superb well it's time for me to hand over to you for your big three and um, what three websites or blog posts or whatever you like would you recommend that our listeners check out and i'll put links to all of these in the show notes you've had some amazing recommendations for sites and blog posts so i'm going to go slightly different with this nice because we don't have enough quantitative researches in education there must be a listener out there who would love to do the kind of research i get to do and they don't know where to start so here's how you do it Number one, my number one recommendation is sign up to DataCamp. Um, so datacamp.com is a site that is a wonderful learning platform for learning how to code and learn to do statistics, learning to code in R or Python, which are the kind of dominant languages that people do statistics in nowadays. There is a monthly charge, but you can do bits and pieces of the courses for free to get to know them. And it's certainly cheaper than doing any face to face learning. So then my second recommendation for these people is that once you've learned some coding, you need some data to practice with. <laughs> and I would recommend just going onto the DfE website to get some. But it's a really ugly gov.uk site where it's impossible even for me to ever find what I need. So instead, I'd say break out of education, go and visit the offices, Office for National Statistics website. And it's a beautifully structured website. We're really lucky in the UK to have access to such high quality statistics um, about the economy and about our lives in Britain. And then my final one, um, which is for everyone, but also for these people on this statistical journey, um, if you're a listener and you're in the UK, I'd urge you to go and download TeacherTap. Um, our website is TeacherTap, which has got two P's in it, .co.uk. You can download the survey app and take part in the research that I do. But for those of you who have become expert data scientists, then please get in touch and we can give you some data so you can analyze it to learn about teachers' lives with me. I love that, Becky. I love the fact we've started with stats and we've ended with stats just to annoy all the uh, the mechanics <laughs> lovers out there as well. That's superb. Well, we've uh, we've reached the end of the interview, Becky, and I just want to thank you for for a couple of things. Um, first off, obviously for for giving up your time. This is um, and I know you're you're feeling a bit under the weather, and I know one of your children is as well. So thank you for for battling through and and speaking to me today. I've I've loved every minute of it. 
and just thank you as well for for all the work that you do and um, with teacher tap um, I as I say I'm absolutely addicted to that I want every single one of my listeners to download this now let's get the numbers up because as we know as statisticians the more uh, people we get the larger the sample size the more valid the data so that would be great to uh, to get more and more people using that it's an absolutely wonderful wonderful service and um, the book is superb and um, again I, I didn't want it to come out wrong when I said that I loved it but it put me on a bit of a downer it, it just makes you think it's it doesn't sugarcoat teaching it says here are the problems in teaching here's some people at the coalface telling you what's going wrong why they're leaving the profession but here's some things that schools can do about it it's changeable so it's a, it's a positive message and and that's why I asked you about whether you'd advise your children to, to go into teaching because you know probably more than the vast majority of people about the, the problems within our systems and what teachers are saying and yet you're still positive that it is a wonderful job and I think that's a really really important message and also thank you for for the writing that you do Becky not just the book but your blog is um it's on it's one of my essential reading lists anytime you post I, I just think it's absolutely wonderful the stuff you did on people premium and on progress and stuff is is just essential listening so please 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 keep doing what you're doing and Becky Allen thank you so much for joining us today thanks So there you have it. There was my interview with Professor Becky Allen. Um, I hope you agree with me with what I said at the start. I think this is a really, really important conversation. Um, tackled some big issues there. No kind of sugarcoating around it. Teaching, I mean, is it an exaggeration to say it's in a bit of a crisis? I'm not so sure it is, to be honest with you. Um, teachers are leaving the profession in droves. Not enough teachers are coming in to replace them. And teachers don't seem that happy. I mean, that that um, survey result from TeacherTap that Becky mentioned about if you were offered another job and um, that paid the same amount, would you consider leaving teaching? And I think almost half the people um, said that they would do. I've certainly been in that position myself thinking that and I've, I've spoke to colleagues who have. And it's a real shame because teaching should be the best job in the world. And at times it is the best job in the world. There's no other job like it. There's no other job where... I mean, I've stood there sometimes in lessons when things are going well um, and you're teaching kids that you've either known for years or you've got kids who you started teaching at the start of the year um, and they just didn't like maths and they didn't understand things and their confidence was low. And you just know sometimes you're in the moment, whether you call it flow or whatever, and things are just going right. And I've, I've stood there in the past, uh, in the middle of the room, just looking around me. Kids are working, kids are smiling, kids are getting things. And I've thought... I can't believe I'm being paid for this. Like this is, life doesn't get any better than this. This is amazing. <laughs> but I've also been there at other times, either in the classroom or at home on a Sunday doing some marking and thought, this is crap. I cannot believe what I'm doing. I'm wasting my life doing this. And that's the thing with a job. It's, it's certainly never boring, but also it's never easy. It's a flipping tough job. And speaking to Becky has got me really kind of reflecting on, on quite a few things. So this will be a bit, bit of a personal takeaway this time. So a bit self-indulgent as well. So feel free to just kind of skip past this. But um, some of you will know that this year I'm on a, I'm on a sabbatical uh, from work. 
it reached the stage where I had lots of other stuff going on um, with diagnostic questions and ED wanting to grow that. I had my book, my book coming out, lots of opportunities that, that come from that for people wanting me to give talks all over the world, really, and all over the country. Um, and my TES commitments as well. And my head teacher, Alison, has always been absolutely brilliant. Never said no to anything I've, I've wanted to do. But it got to the stage where I just felt bad. I, I, I couldn't ask for any more time off because then my kids, the kids suffer and so on and so forth. So um, I, full on sabbatical, no commitments. Hopefully I'll get a chance to go in and, and do some teaching with year 11s in the build up to, to GCSEs. But and this is going to sound terrible, this, what I'm about to say here. Um, and I don't know whether it's kind of I'm in the honeymoon period of this or what, but I feel more energised now that I'm not kind of going into school every day. Um, and I feel happier. I've got my weekends back. Um, I've got my most of my evenings back. I'm not knackered. I'm, I'm seeing my wife more. And I just like life's great, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. And it pains me to say that because I feel guilty saying that because I, I'm a teacher. I should be a teacher. It's what I've always wanted to do. And I mentioned um, during the interview with Becky that um, we're expecting a baby in January, finger touching wood, um, if all goes well. And this has been a source of conflict for me and my wife over, over many years. So we've been together God, about nine years now, something like that. And for years, I said to Kate, my wife, I, I'm just not ready to be a dad. I'm not ready to have a family because I just don't have time. And I like, for, for personal reasons, I, I know how important it is to for a child to be brought up in a stable environment and, you know, it, what an advantage it is to have two parents who are around all the time, that they see all the time. And that just couldn't have been me. I would have been a terrible father. My, my child would have been a stranger to me. And that was a hard decision. It was flipping tough. And it reached a point where I thought, what's important here? And that's one of the other reasons I've kind of taken a, a step back from, from, from the classroom. Um, and now, I mean, I'm certainly by no means ready to be a dad or anything like that, but hopefully I'll have more time and more time to spend spend with my child. And it just makes me think that that, that isn't right. And um, that, that not just me, but I know I've spoke to teachers in other positions where you have to make so many sacrifices for, for being a teacher above and beyond. And it's it's not enough to say it's a vocation. It's a calling. It's it's, it's just got a bit too much at the moment. So. Speaking to Becky and just kind of having a think myself has, has just made me reflect on a few things. So there's kind of two sides to this. The first is what can schools do? What can what can individual schools do to help this situation out? Well, I think there's two things. First off is they can reduce workload. Now, um, it's not going to be possible with the financial constraints that, that schools are under these days to kind of take lessons off teachers, I don't think, because um, that's going to require the more teachers to be um, employed to, to fill the gaps from, from these extra free periods and so on. But teachers can reduce workload in other ways, uh, predominantly by getting rid of things that don't need doing. Now, this has been something that's come up time and time again. It came up in this interview. It came up in the Tom Sherrington interview. This kind of accountability, this data collection, this obsession with writing down targets and when, when students don't meet certain things, explaining why, justifying, filling out reports, filling out forms, it, it's too much. It's too much. And it, it doesn't help. I'm convinced it doesn't help. At the time when I was doing it, I was convinced it doesn't wasn't helping. But now when I speak to Becky and I listen to what she's saying about how impossible it is to measure progress and how noisy and unreliable these tests are and so on and so forth 
making decisions based on these and justifying results based on these un non-reliable things, I'm just, I'm just not convinced, not convinced it is needed at all. So that's one thing schools can do. Marking is another one. Again, uh, if you listen to my interview with Dylan William, if you listen again to Tom Sherrington, if you, if you read research on this, there is very little evidence out there that this kind of tri triple marking or some of these marking and feedback practices, which are so burdensome on the teachers, actually have a positive impact. And I always go back to Dylan William here. The only good feedback is that which makes students think. And I believe you can make students think and reflect upon their work so much more effectively than spending three or four hours marking, writing individual things, get um, in every kid's book, getting kids to reflect on that, remarking that, and so on and so forth. And again, I go back to what Dylan uh, wrote in Carl Hendrick and Robert McPherson's book when he suggested a really good way to kind of um, make marking and feedback really impactful on the kids is to say you've set your kids a 10 question homework, uh, mark it just on kind of a separate piece of paper, and then give it back to the child and say, you've got seven out of 10, find your three mistakes. And that then it's very quick for the teacher to do, but then the child has got something to do. They've got to play, Dylan describes it as plain detective. They've got to look hard, not just at the questions they've got wrong, but the questions that they've got right and think, have I really got this right? Did I understand this? And it just makes students think and it doesn't take massive amounts of teachers time. So I think schools, a lot of schools could take a long, hard look at their marking and feedback policy and ask themselves, is the time and the hours teachers are putting into it value for money? What impact is it having on teachers and what impact is it having on the kids? And can we not get that same impact or even more whilst reducing teachers workload at the same time? And then we return to this issue of centrally planned lessons. I'll tell you, it's weird this, like, if you listen back to that Greg Ashman, the first time Greg came on the show, when he first pitched this, I was having none of this. And how times have changed now. Now I'm thinking it's the way forward, particularly for what Becky describes as novice teachers, teachers in their first kind of few years. Just this, having this framework to base your lessons on, whether it's examples that you're gonna use, whether it's the practice questions that the, that the students are gonna have a go at, or whether it's the demonstration or the resource or something, just having this that's been not just downloaded off TES because it's a five-star resource and it's sat on a shared area as this is a good PowerPoint, but having some pedagogical support around it. Somebody's planned this out. Somebody's tried it out, refined it, gone back to it, tweaked it, and now here it is. And if all teachers are using this approach, you can join, discuss it together in departmental meetings. You can reflect back on it. And it just means it saves teachers time, but it also allows them to tap into the expertise around them. Expertise that they don't have just yet, that there's no way they can have yet. And it just means that they can then focus on getting better and better as they start to use these resources and learn from them and so on and so forth. So I think there's some things that schools could do in terms of reducing workload. But then Becky made another point. Sometimes it's not just the hours that teachers are putting in that determine how happy they are and how willing they are to keep trying and keep working. It's how supported they feel, how, how happy they are. And determinants of this happiness is, it is the support that schools give. It's, it's making teachers feel like the work that they're putting in is making a difference. And part of that comes from reducing workload and, and getting rid of the stuff that doesn't make a difference. But apart from just, it's just a small thing that, that schools do, the appreciation that schools 
and senior leaders and so on give to teachers as opposed to this culture that I see in some places that I'm, I'm lucky enough to visit where it's a very kind of oppressive culture where everybody feels on guard and like they're being watched and judged all the time and they're just not healthy places to be so if we've got any either school leaders listening or heads of department is there anything you can do having listened to Becky to think how can I reduce the workload for my staff and how can I make them feel more supported because they're the two things that are going to lead to more motivated teachers teachers putting in more effort which is ultimately going to be better for the kids and better for the department as a whole and then the flip side of this is what can teachers do now again this is something I didn't think I'd say but I'm going to come out and say it and it's, it's interesting I'm recording this just after half term and, and there's been loads of tweets on Twitter um, by teachers saying that they're just taking a break over half term. They've, they've had enough, you know, you know, they're just down in tools. They need a rest. And then other teachers have been coming back and saying, I'd love to do that. But it doesn't mean that the work's going to get done. It just means it's all building up. I need my half terms to kind of catch up on all the work that's been building up and so on and so forth. And <laughs> I just think that. If you're not happy in a school, and I don't mean you've just had a bad day here, I mean you've had quite a few bad days, you've had quite a few bad weeks, quite a few bad months, particularly if you're early on in your career, if you're not happy, it's time to make a change. And I know from personal experience, making a change is bloody hard. If you go back and listen to one of my earliest ever interviews with Mel from Just Maths, we both talk, talked about the difficulty of moving schools and how surprisingly hard it is. Nobody talks about how hard it is to move schools. Everybody talks how hard it is to first start teaching in your NQT year and so on and so forth. But nobody talks about what it's like to have taught for five or six years, be thinking you're doing all right, then move to a different school and your whole world falls apart. But I'll tell you what, making a change, it can be the best thing that you do. Because not all schools are the same. There are some amazing schools, amazing places to work out there. And if you're not happy, then it might not be that teaching is wrong for you. It might just be that the school's wrong for you. So don't be afraid to make a change. As teachers are in a fortunate position at the moment, particularly maths teachers, but all teachers as well, there's a shortage of teachers. So it's a buyer's market. We can go out there and pick and choose our schools. We can go back to the advice that Becky's gave and Dylan William used this in my second interview as well about how you go about trying to identify a good school. But with flexibility here, pick and choose. Try a school out, give it a year, give it two years. But if you're not happy, move on. Life is too short. And this, I'm convinced it's the best job in the world, but it can also be the worst job in the world in the wrong circumstances. Anyway, sorry about that. I know it's a bit self-indulgent and a bit of a rant, but it's just, I've just been thinking about this stuff a lot. Um, as I say, this year on a sabbatical, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have visited more schools than I've ever visited and worked with more departments than I've ever worked with. And I'm just seeing that things are done very differently across the country and it really does have an impact on how happy teachers are. And I just think that, yeah, it's, it's something that we, we all need to think about. Things don't need to be this way. And the final thing I'll say before I wrap things up is one big takeaway from this is if you've not already, download Teacher Tab. It's flipping brilliant. It's on iOS and on Android devices. devices. It's Teacher Tab, double P at the end. And you just get notified 3.30 every day. You don't have to do it. And um, if you don't want to, if you miss a couple of days, it takes about two minutes and it is flipping fascinating. I promise you it's addictive. So let's get downloading that because um, the more we get, the more data and um, the more interesting results that are going to come from it.
All that remains for me to do is to once again thank my guest, Professor Becky Allen. I absolutely adored speaking to Becky. I've been looking forward to it. I was a bit nervous about this one. She's super, super, super smart is Becky. Um, but hopefully I didn't embarrass myself too much um, speaking to her. Um, I absolutely loved it. And um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the jazzy music that you've um, heard throughout the show. And a massive thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping on listening to these podcasts. The top quality A-list guests keep on coming thick and fast. I'm so excited about the people I'm going to be speaking to over the coming weeks, months, and hopefully years. So um, as I say, if you get a chance, um, either give this uh, podcast a review on iTunes, quick review, ideally a good one, um, and also tell a colleague about it recommend an episode maybe it's this episode this certainly isn't a math specific one this is one that you could tell your english history geography whoever whatever friends about um, and let's spread the word and build the audience anyway i've banged on far too long now you take care of yourselves bye for now.